so stupid, he comes across in front of me every single time he ever takes. Where does he want me to go off the track? No! Stop talking to me in the braking zone! Guaranteed to be less disappointing than Connor Daly in St. Petersburg. Welcome to Motorsport 101. Sorry, Sarah. Welcome to episode 31 of the Motorsport 101 podcast. I'm your friendly neighbourhood host, Mr. Andre Harrison. Alongside me, as ever, well, maybe not always as ever, given the week he's kind of salty he missed out last week's show, here's Adam Johnson. Salty? What? No, not at all. I'm just sat over here, you know, not paying attention to the show. Now you want my opinions back? Now, Oh, do you, do you want to hear what my thoughts on the IndyCar do, yeah? No. Uh, <laughs> okay. Fine, I'm just going to go back over here with my NASCARs. Yes, and uh, while, while Johnson strokes his NASCAR collection very thoroughly indeed. <laughs> and the other side of our podcast, we have Mr. Ryan King. Hello, sir. Yeah, hold up. Just give me a second. I got to see if I got the reserve roll at Force India yet. Oh, God. Damn it, I applied for that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like King's totally not making reference to something else later in the show we'll be talking about. Uh, not uh, at all. But uh, yeah, we've got quite a loaded show when it comes to discussion topics this time around. In this episode, we'll be talking over Formula E's very controversial Mexico City race and the no-call that may have lasted repercussions on the series. Shout out to Jerome D'Ambrosio on that one. Meanwhile, we'll also be talking about IndyCar as its season opener took place in St. Petersburg just yesterday as uh, Juan Pablo Montoya with a broken steering rack goes on to win but St. Pete for the second year in a row behind a 1-2 of Penske as Simon Pagano takes second ahead of Ryan Hunter Ray. Meanwhile, Alexander Rossi has been in the papers again and he's kind of alienated the IndyCar series given that he's made it quite clear he's only here to get back in the F1 as he's rejoined Manor as a reserve and we'll talk about the controversy regarding that and the nature of reserve drivers themselves. Are they valuable? Is it actually good for your career? We'll find out out more on that later. Channel 4 has revealed their lineup for their new broadcasting endeavor, and we'll be talking a lot about that and why Alex Zanardi is has caused a few feathered, well, feathered, ruffed, <laughs> rustled feathers there. Has caused go. Dre to completely lose his teeth. <laughs> <laughs> we got there in the end. That was going so well. Um, we're also talking about is there a power struggle in Formula One right now? We'll be talking about that given the recent. Uh, Again, we're talking about the Halos for three episodes in a row. It's crazy. But the fallout from that, the drivers not really being on the same page, the GPDA survey of last year, and Mark Webber, well, being Mark Webber, um, salty, basically. So we'll be talking all about that, and then we'll be giving a quick preview of the 2016 Formula 1 season, given that it kind of starts next weekend. Yay. (laughs) Um, So we'll be talking all about that and inevitably much more on this episode of Motorsport 101. Now... To open the show, we're talking about Formula E this time around. Now, I'm sure many of you saw it. It was the it was round five, I think. Yeah, round five of the Formula E Championship in Mexico City. Um, same same track, really, as um, the Formula One race we saw last year, but not really given King. The track layout was really rather butchered compared to the Grand Prix circuit for obvious reasons. <laughs> Yeah, it was the oval. It was the oval at uh, at the same track, but with basically chicanes everywhere and shoehorn in the the section inside the baseball stadium 
yeah, they shoehorned it in. Like, obviously, it felt like they had to have that in there, and it's just like a triple left-hander, and it just, it just served no purpose. You couldn't pass through it. It was just there to make it look pretty and to connect <laughs> it back to the main straight again. But do you know Which, what's of course, strange it, about the layout? The no, no, oval no. on that track was originally designed for the NASCAR Mexico series. Ironically, ah. Formula E might be the only series that drives in it this year. There's rumours that the NASCAR Mexico series might not exist this year. It might have gone under. So <laughs> oh, you want to oh, see racing boy. on the Mexico City Oval? You may have missed your chance. <laughs> yeah, electric cars going at a sizzling 80 miles an hour through there. Great. It's like sort of Scale Electric's IndyCar. <laughs> yeah. When you put it like that, I guess it was. But yeah, the, the layout wasn't great. I can't lie. And, you know, the... The first and the last chicanes were the ones that I think stood out the most as ones that were bad. Like I, I took one look at the turn one chicane and I thought that is going to end in an accident somewhere. Or drive through penalties. Yeah, luckily it didn't really happen from a incident standpoint, apart from Nelson Piquet's big off in qualified at a sizzling eight miles an hour, which completely wrecked the, the, the wall that was, again, seemingly there for no reason given how easy it gave way. I mean, what was the friggin' point of that wall being there if you can just knock it over at a walking pace um so yeah not a good look where that's concerned um but the first and the last chicanes were seemingly the most annoying because the last chicane was there just to slow them down really for that long or fairly long uh opening straight i mean it's long for formula reset because i'm pretty sure that's the highest top speeds we've seen in a formula re-race since its inception they were getting well over 125 miles an hour down there it goes it's, it's, it's a sizzling speed um but king like the layout just wasn't great was it no, it kind of basically any of the issues the race had could basically be blamed on the layout. Yeah, like it's the one common denominator here through all of the issues that the race had. And its biggest one being a battle for second. Well, uh, so, so we thought at the time anyway, a battle for second between Dragon Racing's Jerome D'Ambrosio and Edam's Racing Sebastian Buemi. Um, there was the leading pack of five at the start of the race was um, D'Ambrosio led. You had Lucas Degrassi, um, D'Ambrosio, Buemi. Daniel Apt, I think, was in there too, and Nicholas Prost. It was all in that leading pack of five that broke out early on, but nobody could seemingly pass each other. Lucas was the only guy that made a passing move um, right towards the end of the first, uh, or the end right towards the pit stop window. Uh, Lucas made a late move. He came out in front, passed Jerome D'Ambrosio after using fan books, and then he was gone. There was a good reason for that, which we'll get to in a minute. But <laughs> it turns out the battle for second was D'Ambrosio versus Buemi, and... Jerome D'Ambrosio did not give Buemi an inch. Like, he, he was right on the line of what you'd call justifiable defending. Um, so much so that they actually crashed while going in a straight line. <laughs> we're not making it up, folks. Watch yeah, the tape for yourselves. It's something yeah. to witness. Do you know the funny thing about this? I, was, I watched that race with a friend of mine who's not really into racing that much. And when that incident happened, when Buemi basically rammed D'Ambrosio in a straight line, she turned to me and went, why, why did they just do that? They just crashed in a straight line. Expecting me, the racing pundit, to know what happened as if it was something technical. And I just kind of looked at her and went, I have no good... I can't give you an answer on that one. I have no idea. Uh, I mean, my theory on the whole situation was... Dan Bro I mean, Buemi was going for the dummy because he did it the lap before and I think a couple of times early in the race where he dives to the inside and goes back out and tries to attempt a move before the chicane. But... 
D'Ambrosio, knowing that Boyby's going to go for the dummy, decides to hold the inside line, and the only way he can make the chicane at such a tight line is to break early. Boyby, not knowing this for some reason, decides to just, you know, act like D'Ambrosio's not going to break and runs right into the back of him. Uh, uh, it's it's oh man <laughs> it's like like imagine trying to explain that to the average casual fan good luck i, I tried uh, uh, there's no chance <laughs> yeah like they, they, they crashed in a straight line like no matter how much you dressed this up he crashed in a straight line yeah literally <laughs> that's what it was it was like but they crashed into each other in a straight line yeah crashed yeah in, crashed that, in a straight that, line that they happened. both they both drove over the chicane jerome d'ambrosio got fastest lap as a result but it was after it was later removed um <laughs> after uh, post-race stewarding and that went that ended up going to nicholas prost funnily enough um but the big incident was a couple of laps later sebastian buemi blatantly cuts the turn one chicane apex Square in the face, something that even code monsters would blush about. <laughs> uh, blatantly cuts the the, the the turn one chicane to overtake D'Ambrosio. Now, at this point, I'd like to think the red mist has truly descended mm. because the entire second, third, fourth, and fifth entirely bunches up with each other. Oh my like, 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 what's to go? Like, what's going on here? D'Ambrosio's taking all sorts of alternative lines to try and get back around him. They get to the final chicane of the lap. D'Ambrosio blatantly drives straight across it to retake second position from Sebastian Buemi, and that's basically what happened. Both guys, near enough, blatantly cheated to try and pass the other. Well, also add into the fact that a few corners before that final chicane, as they came out of the stadium section, it appeared to look like Buemi, I think, slowed to try and let D'Ambrosio through, maybe. D'Ambrosio went ridiculously wide, nearly crashed. Nico Prost tried to dive bomb his teammate, and he didn't really know what was going on, so he decided to try and profit. It was a massive cluster fruitcake, to be honest with you. That entire lap was... It was like one... It was like Botchamania does Formula E. <laughs> yeah. Carnage. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 was, it was relative carnage. D'Ambrosio came out back in front, and no matter how hard Sebastian Bemi fought, he could not find a way around D'Ambrosio after that. D'Ambrosio took second, dot, 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 or so we thought, because it turns out at about 3 o'clock in the morning, um, British time, about, so about five hours after the race had finished, in post-race scrutineering, Lucas Degrassi was disqualified. It turns out he was disqualified for having the car... Or the combined weight of car and driver be underweight. Um, oh, was, well, that's a shame. They've, they've, they've not made that mistake before, have they? Well, it wasn't exactly the same mistake. I mean, people, <laughs> people forget, in Berlin in season one, he was disqualified. I believe it was for having an illegal front wing on the car. Um, okay. Aerodynamic advance <clears throat> changes is not allowed in Formula E yet, and he had an illegal front wing, and Audi got disqualified for it. Now, it's a similar incident. Now, I believe the story is going to the guys at Current E. Great. If you didn't take Formula E, by the way, go check them out. Best mm. place for your news for Formula E without, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, Lucas was trying out a new set of rims. And the rims in question made him underweight. So basically, Audi Sport was too busy playing Forza. And it turns out the <laughs> extra weight took him over the P-Class performance bracket. Who knew? Uh, so Lucas got DQ'd. 
that pushed Jerome D'Ambrosio up into the win position. So for the second time in Formula E history, not only has Lucas been DQ'd, but Jerome D'Ambrosio is directly won as a result. <laughs> Great. Um, when we got bumped up into second, third would have been Loic Duval, but Duval was also given a 15-second time penalty for repeatedly exceeding track limits. So Nicholas Prost got bumped up into third place, and he got the fastest lap bonus that was taken from him from Jerome D'Ambrosio, because on his fastest lap, he blatantly cut the turn one chicane so uh, breathe okay so now we've taken care of the of the, of the race result let's talk about the controversy incident itself now you may have noticed i didn't mention any punishment for d'ambrosio Oberwemi because they didn't get any now they blatantly cheated there's no ifs or buts here they cheated to to get where they got to in the race in terms of position and whatnot king it's not a good look for the series, is it? No, because it stewarding in the series comes off as a bit, uh, bit of a joke. Run, yeah, bit as a joke, bit run by the mob. It's like everyone loved it, so there's no reason to penalize it. Yeah, it's like they went for the entertainment card on this one, but they really didn't seem to take a no harm, no foul approach here. Yeah, it's it's weird because. <laughs> there was there was two other controversial incidents that were stewarded in that race as well. One was Nicholas Prost getting a a penalty for it was a drive through penalty I think it was for an unsafe release when the only person it really affected was his teammate Sebastian Buemi who was released at near or less the same time. So is it an unsafe release when you control the releases? <laughs> You see where I'm going with this? Yeah, <laughs> this is very strange. I'm also, can I just, before we get right into the controversy, can we give a shout out to Antonio Felix da Costa? Oh, who man. may have had the worst race a professional racing driver can have. He picked up something ridiculous like three drive through penalties before the first half of the race and then crashed. Yeah. Literally every five laps, it was Antonio Felix da Costa, drive through penalty. Antonio Felix Acosta drive through penalty. It was like Jensen Button Canada 2011 without, you know, the glorious comeback. Yeah, yeah. it's funny about that as well. You mentioned, and I was about to mention the Costa as well, that he had a, he already had a 10 place grid drop for changing the battery around oh, after goodness. qualifying. <laughs> then he had a drive through, well, he was, he was given the black and orange flag for a dangerous car because his front wing was, was, was flapping about all over the place after an accident he'd had. Then he binned it, and then after the race, he said he was given a drive-through penalty, but it was then taken away, and the FIA had to apologise for it. <laughs> I have, like, I, I, I've been watching motorsports since 1999. <sighs> I have never heard that one before in my life, King. Have you? <laughs> no, I've never heard the FIA apologise for making a stewarding mistake ever. No, <laughs> never. That uh, apologise, it doesn't happen. He's broken history, everybody. He has wow. made history. He's broken the fourth wall. He's gotten the FIA to apologise. This man is basically Deadpool. He's just <laughs> crossed the Rubicon. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think that was possible. He no. made the FIA make a mistake. But the race itself had already had arguably two controversial calls given stewarding inquiries and whatnot. This was a controversial non-call, more, more than anything else. And I'm personally of the opinion that... As I, I had to think... I, I was on Skype with, with King and, and a bunch of our mates regarding this at the time. I was in deep thought about that one for a good 10, 15 minutes. I was like, well, what do you do here? Because they, they both basically broke the same rule. They both advantaged directly from what they did. 
but it turned out it didn't actually have an effect on the race result itself. So there's an argument I think some people would make to suggest that, you know, for the sake of entertainment, maybe you just let that one slide. But at the same time, can you really let blatant cheating go? But I mean, it, it depends on what you want penalties to be. Do you want them to be punitive, where you get where you get punished for doing something wrong, or reparative, where it you know makes up for a mistake? Exactly, and and, and that's the problem. Um, ugh, it's it, it's an ugly one because I don't think there's actually a right or wrong call here. Mm. But for me, I can't help but feel like this is the wrong call, and. You feel it's, like they should have at least done something. Yeah, I agree. Like you, the can't, total hands-off approach—it's not great. Yeah, like not even like give them a formal warning so we could all see that. Okay, like look, guys, do not do this again. Yeah, basically. this is a little bit like uh, the whole NASCAR debacle at the end of last year when they—I mean, it was a lot worse in NASCAR's case where they effectively been preaching, um, you know, boys have at it for years, and then you had Joey Logano versus Matt Kenseth round one at Kansas where. Not only did they go completely hands-off, you had the CEO of the series, Brian France, saying what Joey Logano did was quintessential NASCAR. So you have Matt Kenseth go, well, if he's not going to get... If NASCAR aren't going to punish him, I guess I'm going to have to take the law into my own hands. And then Martinsville happened, and we were all very sad. Um, So this is nowhere near as bad, but I get what you're saying. It feels a little bit like, well, the drivers kind of sorted it out among themselves in the end, so, hey, we'll leave it. But it was that whole lap was just a bit of a mess. Yeah, I mean, there should be no situation where the drivers purposely break the rules to benefit themselves. Yeah, that's no, that's not great. That, that that's a no go. And you know what? It sets that could have da- easily spilled yeah. over. Yeah, and you know what? it sets a very dangerous precedent because now a driver could easily look at that kind of situation because Formula E is a hard is a hard sport to overtake in because of its lack of speed and lack of major straights. So it can be difficult to pass in Formula E. A driver will now look at that incident and say, I can take a liberty to make a pass and now I won't get punished for it. And that could cause some serious problems. And we could easily see more incidents like what happened at Mexico City in the future because a driver will now look at that and say, hmm, I can do this now and I probably won't get punished for it because, you know, it's just racing. And I think, King, I think that sets a dangerous standard, to be honest with you. Yes, yes. This, this is not this is not the olden days where where drivers can sort it sort it out among themselves. No, no. Like like I don't trust racing drivers. I just don't. And the reason why I just don't trust racing drivers is because they're hotheads and they're full of adrenaline at the best of times. Like Carlos, like sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry I'm not Cosmi. Sorry, you have got the wrong guy. Sergio Perez was a prime example. It's like a week after. Jules Bianchi died, Mary just straight up admitted, look, we're drivers, we're going to take liberties with yellow flags, it's inevitable. Yeah. Um, and that was all the justification I ever needed for a virtual safety car, and now we have one. So Yeah, you literally, that's the thing, racing drivers are the most competitive animals ever, and um, I, this reminds me a little bit of a similar circumstance where NASCAR introduced group qualifying at the start of last year and there was a couple of massive pileups in qualifying at Daytona and there was some shenanigans we're trying to not go out before the end of the clock or something or other it was all there was a lot of shenanigans going on and quite a few people were like well blame the drivers for pulling these stunts and on the other hand you, the drivers are kind of going well 
We're paid to win. We're going to do whatever we need to do, even if it puts us in some kind of... You're putting us in a situation where to get the most advantage, we have to effectively do things dangerously. So, and we're going to do that because we're race drivers and we kind of don't think of our own safety. <laughs> we think about winning races. That's kind of what we're built to do. So you're absolutely right in that regard. You can't really trust race drivers as far as you can throw them. Dot, dot, dot. More on that later. Mm. But um, yeah, that pretty much covers the long and the short of it. I, I mean, for me personally, I'd have liked to have seen a double disqualification. Um, really? Yeah, I, I say disqualify them both. You Oof. both blatantly cheated to advance your position in the race. That cannot happen, and I think the series had to take a stand. I say throw the book at them, and I sound like such a one of those hot takers you get on like really southern. <laughs> I like, was going to say this video. is strong tactics from you, Dre. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. Norm- I, I'm not normally this strong in what I say, <laughs> but I feel like that's the only penalty you can really give out on this one because if it was one person doing it to another. They get disqualified. Simple as that. Yeah. So, two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make a right. They've both done it. They've like, and you know what? The series has got has got to book at them. They've, they've got to make a statement of this cannot happen. This absolutely cannot. Because you know what? This sport has been a sport that's very entertaining, but it's often seen drivers take liberties, forced contact. There was very very argy bargy moments in these cars. Like, do you remember last year with Daniel Atman? He basically pretty much T-boned Algaswari. <laughs> like like we've had incidents like that before, and largely speaking, they've gotten away with it. And I feel like. The series, is t- I think, has taken one liberty too far for me. So I'd like to have seen a double DQ. I think that's the only real option. Like, you can't let them go unpunished. Maybe like, maybe if you gave them both like a hefty time penalty, that might have been fine as well. But I say you go all the way. And I say you DQ them from the race, quite frankly. And, you know, have Nicholas Prost celebrate a win long into the night because he's finally got a Formula <laughs> E win under his belt. But, um, yeah, I think that's what I probably would have done, like, King, it's up to you. Do you want to? Do you have any do you have two cents on that in terms of potential punishment? Uh, yeah, I pretty much agree with you for probably the same reasons. Like, you should not completely disregard the rules in any circumstances. They're there for number one competitive reasons, and they're there to protect you and the other drivers out on track. Like, imagine if a lap car was just, you know, going through the chicane and they decided to, like, oh, let's just completely flat, like, flat foot the chicane. Yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> it's not great. It's not great, honestly. Although, Dre, I do have some news for you. You've now moved up to uh, the number four bracket in the shootout for most annoying podcasters. Gets in! <laughs> <laughs> uh, we might have to provide context for that joke um, because no one's going to understand what we're talking about. Yeah, before we went on the air, well, I actually showed King this really cool list of the 64 most annoying people in American sports media. Um, and I thought, like, we've got to do our own Sweet 16 version for Formula One media people. <laughs> like, David Croft, we're coming for you, bruh. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Man. <laughs> Jenny Gow was in danger. Jenny Gow was living dangerously for a little while, but I think she's safe for now. And I do have to note, for the record, David Croft, you do have some positives. Like Absolutely. Like, he, like, he's like a good what? storyteller. He's a good storyteller. Like, if, if he was a practice-only commentator, I would, I would be perfectly fine with that. Then again, you've got Toby Moody, who's good at both. Yeah. But, yeah. Moody's, but Moody is so elitist on Twitter, it makes me cringe. <laughs> um, you're just still... I was, I'm was. i I'm still disappointed in him over the MotoGP finale last year. He was in the Rossi camp, and I'm like, no, Toby, please. Can you not? <laughs> please. Look, 
if we, we got like, if there was a MotoGP version, Keith Hume would be the number one seed. <laughs> Moving on. <Nah. laughs> um, <laughs> let's talk IndyCar and much-anticipated IndyCar season opener in St. Petersburg yesterday. I get to talk IndyCar at last. Yes, you've only had to wait a whole three weeks for this day, Johnson. I know. Uh, but uh, it was a pretty good race, actually. Like it was better than last year's race. Like, like I said on Twitter on Friday, I said, "Dudes, I know we're all very excited for IndyCar this season, and and you know, quite rightly so." But St. Pete is not a good track, and I and, you know last year's race was a stinker. It had not much going on in it, and it like the, ba- the basically the entire race could be summed up in two words, and that was end plates. Uh, yeah, it was the debut of the new aero kit, so there was debris cautions all over the place. So yeah, it, it was and, it was not great. End plates, power gets screwed. Lol, basically. There and, was uh, there is an argument to make St. Petersburg like round two or three, perhaps, rather than the opening round of the season. So I'd be fine with that. Yeah, yeah. Pe- people love people love Florida, and it's nice weather in February, and it's beaches. Yeah. yeah, I said this before the race. It feels like St. Petersburg is almost kind of in the Monaco bracket. You know, visually it looks great. Them driving along on the Mo- the Florida coastline, and you know, through the the city streets, and it's a it's a fun track for the drivers. Just as a pure racing spectacle, it's kind of difficult because it's kind of tricky to pass. Very. Although some drivers kind of made it look even harder than it probably was. Shout out to you, Carlos Munoz. We'll get to you later. And Marco Andretti, happy birthday. You drove like you'd already had your birthday drinks before you got in the car. Yay! <laughs> we were praising him for his consistency. What does he do? He bins it. Of course. Oh, man. That's exactly what Marco Andretti does. But it was a pretty straightforward win in the end for Juan Pablo Montoya. He took advantage of a situation where Pagano had the early lead. Looks like he was going to take off into the distance, but cautions brought them all together because that's what IndyCar is, pretty much. Montoya took the lead, took the ball, and was gone, pretty much. And this was despite him having a broken steering rack. So, uh, yeah, Monty's a crazy man, but uh, he's still stupidly quick. Considering between this and Will Power winning the pole with a new track record whilst under the effects of a concussion, (laughs) we have to conclude that our joke about Penske being the dark side of the force is not a joke anymore. No, it's no. real. It's happening. And what, Pagano breaking out a five and a half second lead on his teammate for like the first quarter of the race? That yeah, was like, ridiculous. What? I'm half expecting to see little BB-8 droids sitting in the back of their cars from now. Yeah, it's, it's like, what possessed Simon Pagano in the first half of that race? He was on, I've never seen him so fast. In it was like it was back in 2014 again before he joined Penske. It was like, yeah. wait, I'm back at Schmidt-Peterson. I'm really good. Yeah. It's like, well, we- well, apparently heading into the weekend, Roger Penske told him, um, this is a make or break year for you. If you don't improve, you are going to be replaced. Jesus. Which is uh, fair enough in a way because, as a, you know, Pagano was a hot prospect. He was very strong in sports car racing for many years. I remember that was where he really cut his teeth. He was part of the Peugeot LMP1 program and that. And then, obviously, he was in IndyCar for several seasons with Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports, which is obviously where James Hinchcliffe is currently based. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where he won his race. I remember when he won in Detroit in 2013, 14. King, help me out here. Which, which one 14, of those? 14, I think it was. 14, yeah, 14. Yes. And that was really what convinced the captain to sign him to a fourth car. And when he got signed, we were like, wow, as if Penske's lineup wasn't strong enough already. And you almost feel sorry for him because he's at Penske racing, probably the best team overall on the grid alongside Montoya, Will Power and Helio Castroneves. Yeah. It's uh, a bit like being John Deacon in Queen. Yeah. It's, it's, (laughs) (laughs) that's brilliant. (laughs) 
Shout out. John, in the unlikely case you're listening to this podcast, it's okay. I love you, but point yeah. stands. Yeah, yeah, you know, Freddie. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, man. Well, but, Cash yeah. Nevers is Freddie. You've got Montoya as Brian May and yeah. Will Power as Roger Taylor. So there you go. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unlucky because we, we all know that Power probably pound for pound is the fastest man in IndyCar. Oh, yeah. Monty is good everywhere. Helio is strong everywhere. Like, and it's Pagano, Mr. Charisma. Yeah, Pagano just he's like we said on last week's show he was he's like 90 percent there he's like 95 percent of, of, of what those three guys are and of course Pagano was just so unlucky last year as well even to only finish 10th overall when he was very strong like his oval speed was superb last year as well he just could, that's not his natural background exactly he, yeah. his oval speed was ridiculously good last year just he was on pace to win the 500 he really was King is still really upset about that by the way because he was <laughs> he was adamant that Pagano was going to win that race man just, how do you think I feel King I picked Will Power <laughs> oops I was I was out by a tenth <laughs> yeah. then again it's alright we weren't Danny Brennan Oh god! <laughs> the the Connor, Connor Daly hype train sadly ended up being derailed. <laughs> Not through any fault of his own. I'll point out. I will yeah. point out. This was during, gone. Yeah. During the first caution, uh, it was the only man to not stop out of sequence. He was put on the red tires, up, and he was in. He led the. He led fifteen laps of the race, believe it or not. Um, thanks to Lizzie Worth for that one. Um, he led fifteen laps of the race. Was still in a comfortable second place. Montoya passed him straight after the restart. Pretty well, much. Well, he went wheel to wheel with Tony Kanaan at one point as well for a good five corners. It was bloody yeah, incredible. Yeah. Literally, like, my entire Twitter timeline was just marking out at that point. It was unbelievable. Yeah, everybody. Because disclaimer: everybody kind of appreciates Connor Daly because he's worked so hard to get to this position, and he's one of the most charismatic and likable drivers in IndyCar as a youngman already. What, uh, what I really enjoyed was yeah. was on Twitter there was quite a lot of the F1 YouTube community coming over to try. Yeah, they were like, "Oh, what's this IndyCar thing about?" And a lot, a lot. Of, <laughs> yeah, I know. Welcome to the party, guys. Where have you been? <laughs> Me and Dre have been sat over here with beers for like the last few years. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But. They were all sitting there going, "Why does everyone love Connor Daly? What? <laughs> what? He's just a rookie. What? What? What's the hype train about?" And we were like, "Guys, you will understand. You will <laughs> He's learn. He's our boy. He's our boy. <laughs> he is our boy. Yeah. He is James Hinchcliffe's little bro, which yeah. probably helps. They've got. A, he's got a bromance with James Hinchcliffe. That automatically makes him one of the coolest dudes on the grid. Exactly. And he's seriously talented. That's the great thing. He's he's got the chops. I mean, last year at Detroit when he stood in for James Hinchcliffe, oh man." That was what really put the IndyCar world on notice, and it was so good. Yeah. Ultimately, it was heartbreak, but man, what a great driver if it overall. Rain during that stint, Connor Daly wins that race. It's as simple mm. as that. And Daly was in second place. He was keeping pace with Montoya pretty much for 75% of that stint before we had to come into the pits. The caution laps actually put him only about two or three laps behind schedule. And he came back out. He looked set to even still be in the top four or five. It was like he'd been leapfrogged by by Elio and uh, Hunter. He had a bit of a slow pit stop. Yeah, he, he had an 11 second pit stop because of the um, because of debris in the, in the radiator duct, which was a shame. It happened to all four Ganassi cars, amazingly enough. But 
Daly then had a second incident. It wasn't on. It wasn't showing on TV, but uh, according to his his eyewitness report, he was going side by side with Hinchcliffe, trying to unlap himself or trying to lap a lap on Hinchcliffe. He was going side by side through towards Turn Four. Carlos Munoz made it free wide. He'd come across the inside of Turn Four and then clipped the the front end off of Daly's wing and had to pit a second time, pretty much ruining what would have been probably a top five or six finish. Basically, um, what this segment can be summed up is as. Carlos Munoz, the greatest racing heel turn. Yeah, because that was the yes. second incident that Munoz caused, because the first one, which caused the first massive caution, as you've probably already seen the Yeah, video you've probably seen the image or the gif of it now. Yeah, because it was it was basically a, a, an eight-car pileup, but Munoz got a little bit too antsy trying to pass Graham Rahal into turn four. He clipped the front of him, he spun Rahal round, and... Ray Hall then has got nowhere to go as a bunch of people just pile into one great big log jam, including Oriel Servia, James Hinchcliffe, um, and a bunch of other dudes all got caught up Bordet in the chaos. Was in it. it was Celestia a mess. Was it was another mess. one. And yeah. it wasn't even just a clip. Munoz flat out plowed him into that corner. Yeah. So it was it, ridiculous. I, I mean, Ray, the, the image you've probably seen, it's been memed to death already. Uh, <laughs> the the yeah. image you've probably seen is from the onboard of Ray Hall's car. He sat facing the wrong way with this just huge bundle of cars in front of him. He's got his arms up in the air in this like V of protest. Just like, what the F just happened? Seriously, what? His arms what was out, that? Yeah. His arms were out of the car. And he, uh, my favourite meme, which Ray Hall himself retweeted, was him holding a steak and shake uh, <laughs> in, in, in his two open arms. Uh, shout out to Faux Willpower for creating that one. Nice. Ray Hall actually tweeted him a response saying, we need to work on your Photoshop skills, Will. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad Ray Hall was able to have a laugh about the situation, mm. even though he took himself way too seriously. And, oh, I, if I gave the fingers, I apologise. Dude, IndyCar's greatest meme is Will Power's double bird salute. <laughs> you, you will Face no judgment from us. <laughs> it's amazing. But, um, Munoz, with two stupid incidents in that race, has not been punished because, of course, not. Um, well, no, he did get a pass. I believe he got a pass through penalty for avoidable contact for the Ray Hall yes. incident, but he still finished eighth. So a lot of people are sitting there going, surely the punishments didn't fit the crime. <laughs> Seriously, he finished eighth. Ray Hall finished 15th a lap down. Daly yeah. was 11th, I think. So, yeah, literally, there. Munoz finished ahead of everyone he screwed over in that race. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> that was just kind of unfortunate. And Munoz had to, that, Munoz had to do a lot of apologizing. Like, there's the video clip of Munoz apologizing to Ray Hall. And Ray Hall was, was like basically every arrogant school teacher you've ever seen. Like, it's the first race, man. You can't be doing things like this, man. And it's, it's like, Ray, I, like I, I love to watch Graham Ray Hall, but the man is so salty. <laughs> well, you, uh, to be honest, heat at the moment, you kind of would be. I mean, I Ray Hall was running well at the time as well. And then, as I say, Munoz didn't even just clip him. He flat out plowed him. I, I know, but it, it wasn't... Let me have my obvious salty Ray Hall joke. You're just okay? the guy in the corner watching Ray Hall get salty, and you're like, eh, this is funny. Yes! That, that is me! He's, he's pissed. <laughs> that is me. I am totally okay with this. <laughs> this is the entire podcast, let's be honest. Look, look, man, like, once his dad basically was practically racist against the French after he after claiming that the two Frenchmen, Vautier and Bordet, ruined his son's championship... I don't care. I will label the Ray Hall family as salty. They advertise steaks, for God's sake. It's asking for it. Do you want salt with that? 
It's, it's, it's asking for trouble, Johnson, okay? <laughs> Let me have this, okay? It's all I've got. <laughs> I'm just I'm just the defender of the Graham Rahal faith because I, yeah. King, I'm break the tie his. on this one. <laughs> oh, I mean, oh, I like the Rahal family, though. It's it's so, oh, it's, yes, it's so biased. They're, 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 from, they're from Western Pennsylvania, you know, around Pittsburgh. I mean, Eastern Ohio, Western Pennsylvania. They own a lot of car dealerships in the area. It's like, mm. <laughs> it's like, do I support the local kid? Yeah. I, to be honest with you, I, I can, in this case, I could totally understand Graham's saltiness. It was, yeah. that was not a good move. And I think, as, as I say, what made it worse was that Ray Hall's race was completely fucked. And he literally got ploughed and then was spun round and he had the entire field plough into him. Yeah. <laughs> so it literally, as I say, that visual just says it all. It was just like, what? What just I was, happened? I was going to say, that wasn't even the saltiest moment of the weekend. Did you see the, the video on YouTube of Sebastian Bourdais and Michaela Lotion? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Like, I, like look. They were getting into it after practice one. <laughs> Sebastian Bourdais has got such a short fuse. It's, oh, man. Like, it must, <laughs> He's it a must classic be, fiery Frenchman. Like, it must be chiselled after all those years dicing with Paul Tracy because <laughs> Bourdais said hey this is not going to be a bloody repeat of two years ago to Michaela Lotion who had that <laughs> enormous accident that put him out for a year <laughs> like like Bourdais had no chill whatsoever Jeez, his first session back Michaela Lotion's just sitting there like wow man Seriously, my first race laps back in this series, really. <laughs> and he, to be fair, he did cut up Borde pretty bad during True. that practice <laughs> session. But even so, Borde got really upset about mm. that. Like, I wouldn't want to mess with that dude. <laughs> Man, IndyCar is back, folks. Yeah, it is back. And like I said, that was actually a pretty darn good St. Petersburg GP. I yeah, we're talking about all the incidents that happened. The yeah. racing quality itself was was really good. Exactly. Um, as I say, in the end, it kind of settled down into a fairly good victory for Montoya. Excuse me, some great stories throughout the field, though. Um, Mikel Aloshin, we've already mentioned, finished top five. Top five, in terms yeah. of the series, great result there. You know, you know what I love about him gone. as well? He said afterwards, how did he get the top five? By not crashing. Amazing! <laughs> <laughs> you know what? In that race, it was good enough. <laughs> and we also had, well, quality racing on show. We had Canaan going side by side with Daly, Montoya going wheel to wheel with Pagano for the race winning pass, mm-hmm. and Ryan Hunter Ray's move on Castroneves to break up the Penske podium. Oh, oh man. man, that was a good pass. That's a scintillator. Helio had gone all the way to the right. Hunter Ray went even more to the right. And, and It was almost like Hunter Ray was saying to his teammate Munoz, Hey, this is how you pass at turn four, mate. Yes, yes. This is how you do it. And Marco, you as well. You need to sit yep. down and watch this too. Yeah, and yeah, shout out to the rookies. All of them were very tall as well. Alexander Rossi had a great time. He was holding off Tony Kanan for a good while there as well. Rossi is uh, Rossi had a very good job, which segues me very nicely into this oh, segment smooth. about... As, yeah, see what I did there, yeah? Smooth like <laughs> butter. Oh, yeah. I, I, sh- I, sh- I should just note, Alexander Rossi did finish in 12th, best of the rookies. Yep, he yep, did. He did, which is you know not a bad job considering he's just using it as a stepping stone back into Formula One. God, how how <laughs> what, what a bastard! I um, know, yeah, disgraceful. Yeah, yeah, like in case you didn't know what we're getting at here, Alexander Rossi was announced. I think it was back on Thursday before the weekend of St. Petersburg began. That he was announced that he was going back to Manor this um, this for this season as a reserve driver alongside obviously the the starting two of Pascal Wehrlein uh, and uh, Rio Harianto. So. Rossi's back as a reserve driver. Now, 
he made no bones in admitting he is using IndyCar as a sidestep. That's not his career aspirations. He's using it as a sidestep to try and get back into Formula One in the future. As you can imagine, IndyCar didn't like that very spot very much. And a lot of the American media over there was very derogatory towards Rossi's comments. Very salty towards Alexander and his comments. And basically... It's the, it's the kind of thing where you read it on the comments section of racer.com. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, As I described it, I, I, we have a little group chat on Twitter for the for the podcast. Yeah. And I kind of went into a little bit of a rant mode. Um, oh. The kind of people who believe that open wheel racing in America died when Tony George arrived in 1997. <laughs> and the final nail in the coffin was 2008 when Kart died. And racing will never be as good as 1992 ever again. And the people who wanted aero kits because IndyCar's just a spec series, ugh, God. And now they're the ones who want aero kits to be gone because, ugh, ugly. The, basically, <laughs> I think all series have them. Dre rails on the F1 equivalent, and this yeah. is IndyCar's equivalent. I mean, just not even worth your time engaging with. Yeah. You, you, you hold yourself back, George. You say what you really mean, bro. Uh, I'm just going to sit over here on this fence. Yeah, it's comfy, isn't it? Uh-huh. Uh, but... but yeah, I mean, I I saw these comments. I didn't really publicly comment about them very much because you know I just I just probably just forgot more unlikely, but, <laughs> but very unlikely. They were so re- worth not worth commenting on. In fact, yeah. to be, for me, the the weird thing about this, what made this so story so weird, and what we're going to get into, is the fact that people got annoyed that Alexander Rossi went, well, I'm going to IndyCar because I want to get back into F1 and I want to, you know, stay fresh and it's an opportunity wait, wait, that's come wait, up to keep my wait, career. Go on. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't we all consider F1 the pinnacle anyway? Well, supposedly. Well, not if you're an IndyCar purist. Yeah, exactly. No, if, no. You're, if you're an IndyCar diehard, then you, you take offense at that. But the mm. point is, what makes this bizarre is, I, I believe the morning that we're recording this, we're recording it Monday, uh, 14th of March. Yeah. Paul DeResta announced as new reserve driver at Williams to universal praise. Well done, Paul. Great opportunity to get back into F1 in a role where he's not actually going to be driving a racing car. <laughs> he's driving the sim. <laughs> he's basically playing Forza or iRacing. So hang oh, on. Man. Alex Rossi slated for keeping his racing career active and waiting for a seat to reemerge. Paul DeResta praised for not racing. Am I am I missing something? Uh, SMFH. Like with the rest of the thing, I feel like there's some other like engine politics behind the scenes. Since you know, uh, Toto Williams. Yeah, Toto Williams sold his shit. I mean, Toto Wolf sold his share. Toto Williams, <laughs> man, that is a that is a mashup oh, yeah, we have yeah. not seen before. Yeah, yeah, Claire, Claire, just like, oh, sorry, Susie, but <laughs> you. Oh, oh, oh gosh, damn. <laughs> King. Could somebody could somebody pull King out from under the bus? He's just throwing himself <laughs> under. <laughs> Bruh. <laughs> okay, we're back on track. Toto Wolf sold his shares in Williams, so mm-hmm. basically Williams has no connection with Mercedes anymore. Right. But Paul DeResta does drive for Mercedes in DTM. Exactly. Oh, so is he is is he going to be racing DTM this year? Yes. Ah, okay. Then I can kind of understand it a bit more. But to me, on the outside, it kind of looked to me like, wait, this... I mean, you're still in F1. You're with an F1 team, but it's this. you're not in practice. You're going to be out of the seat. So hang on a minute. 
Has the German press been slating Deresta for, ugh, how dare he treat DTM as just a stepping stone? No, because the German no. press aren't elitist. Uh, <laughs> well, not as much elitist anyway. No. But, uh, again, I remember going back to when I first started watching IndyCar properly in 2015, and me and King had a talk about this. I think it was. I think it happened when Jensen Button was asking about the race in New Orleans, where like, oh, why don't they run in the rain properly? And I think it was, I think it was Tony Kanaan and, and Elio that had to go out of their way to correct him on Twitter and whatnot and say, yeah, this is the reason why. Yada yada yada. King, you were the first person to tell me about how IndyCar tends to have this very elitist kind of point of view about themselves as a single-seat series, especially when F1 comparisons are made. Um, I think the fan base does. Certain elements of the fan base, certainly. I think we should be careful to generalise. As we always say, the drivers are very approachable. They're very down-to-earth. They probably appreciate the series. However... Certain sections Ooh, actually, of the media and fan the base on, this. on the other hand. <laughs> See, oh, really? This is exactly what I was getting at. This is exactly what I was getting at. Go on, King. Hmm. Drivers, like, most of the drivers, like the veterans, like, uh, Dario tried to get into F1 twice, didn't get his seat. He tried yeah. to get at McLaren, didn't. Jaguar didn't. Uh, Dixon tried yep. at Williams, didn't. Didn't Joseph Newgarden have a test with Force India? Uh, yeah. Uh, Newgarden and Daly tested for Force India. There you go. Well, yeah, look at so, Connor Daly. Connor Daly's been trying to get into F1 for the last three years, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. he tested for Force India back in 2013. Yeah. My brain hurts. Really? So, not only have they tried to get in and it often been turned down, the drivers, I think, have this very big sense of arrogance regarding their own series. Like I mentioned to King before about how Kanan was one of the first used to jump on Jensen Button for for talking about the series and how it couldn't run in the rain like that. Kanan was, think, like, was, was, was very out of his way in defending that and, 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 and the notion of it all, King. So, like, the sen- is the sense of elitism what's causing this? Uh... I wouldn't say with with the drivers it's elitism. With the drivers, it's more they feel like the F one like the F one greatest like quote from Dario Franchitti himself or Tony Canana. I forgot in the racer article they called the grid a bunch of prima donna playboys. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, I think uh, from the driver standpoint, um, I think the series in general is. I think for years and years it has struggled against this perception that it's like F1 light, like it's kind of second second grade F1. It's more gimmicky, it's more spec. So maybe that's why sometimes they bite when, you know, F1 drivers or fans take a crap on the series. I think also to a degree, there's a little bit of elitism from the IndyCar drivers because IndyCar is a veteran sport. It's very hard to break into as a rookie. So maybe mm-hmm. the, when Rossi said, oh, I'm just going to do this for a year and hopefully go back to F1, I think maybe some of the drivers went, yeah, good luck with that. We've been doing this 15 years and it doesn't get any easier, mate. So if you think you can just come in here just as an F1 guy and think you'll suddenly be really good, like Max Chilton, notice how there's been nowhere near as much backlash on him. Admittedly, he is trying to make a career in the States now. He's not really looking back to F1, but he's done everything right. He went into Indy Lights first. He kind of paid his dues. So um, Rossi's going straight into IndyCar and kind of going, eh, it's fine. I'll be back in F1 soon. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it seems like if you're not going to go back, you don't get as much hate. Like, I, like I know, like, Rubens Barrichello was, you know, good friends with Tony Kanaan, and it was clearly... He was not going to go back to F1. So he was on his retirement over, tour. There was basically, yeah, yeah. If you're not going 
back, no one's going to hold anything against you. That's why they embrace Montoya. Montoya, well, he'd already been out of F1 for a while. He'd been over in NASCAR, and they've yeah. largely embraced Takuma Sato over there as well. So I think you're right. I think they've kind of, you know, if you're there to stay and be embraced by IndyCar, then that's fine. But I think, I don't know. I think I think a lot of this backlash stems from uh, many, many years of IndyCar and American open wheel racing being somehow passed off as like an inferior version of Formula One when they've been desperate to either be a good, strong competitor or to stand on their own. So it's it's one of those classic issues. It's internet, internet blowing up. I mean, oh, it's like, I want to say classic issues, but it's like, it goes on to like the beginning of time where it's mm. like in the 20s, the Speedway purposely changed their regulations from the same regulations they use in Europe because they felt like the, the racing cars in Europe were either they were moving away from being like special road cars to purpose built race cars. And they felt like, no, in America, we race what we build. Yeah. So it's this, this has been going on for time immortal, but really what, uh, question this posed me to ask um was i mean it's it's kind of changed slightly now that i know duress is, is doing some racing this year but what's the more effective way to get back into formula one if you lose your ride is it to stay with an f1 team even if you're not doing much racing as a reserve driver say or is it to go out and drive another series maybe an indycar maybe a stoffel van dorn's done go to um super formula in japan which way is more effective? What do you think, guys? I don't think Ooh. there is a better option. I think a lot of this comes down to circumstance. I think a yeah, lot... Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think... I've often been of the belief where if you lose an F1 seat, it's incredibly hard to get it back. Yeah. Like, there's, You're there's, kind of seen as damaged goods. Yeah, it, like... Normally, you only get one shot. Like, yeah. Adrian Sutil was very lucky to have gotten two, especially given one of the reasons why he didn't have a seat in the first place. <clears throat> Bar, <clears throat> Lewis Hamilton, <clears throat> um, et cetera. But, bad coffee uh, got there. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, God. Uh, you know, February, March cold's real bad, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, essentially, there's, like, Sittil's a rare example. And, like I said, once you often lose your seat, very rarely do you get a second chance. Like, like mm. you said, I think a lot of that is down to damaged goods. I think a lot of that is down to you know what I, like, what I like to call shiny hood ornament syndrome where you, you've got to take the exciting fast young and see for stap and max for more details on that mm. and that's know, i think what saved kevin magnuson he was young yeah, enough to still that, be in that category having already had an f1c and lost it that uh, that and having one enormous danish sponsor tends to help but uh, and a very good racing dad yeah again helps <laughs> um but in any case I don't think there's a designated good way in. I, I think as long as you've got decent funds behind you, you'll always have a chance. If mm. like Magnuson was, is walking proof of that more than anything else. King, only two cents on this. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like try to compile a large list of reserve drivers as, as large as I possibly could within like the two hours that I devoted to it, and there are <laughs> cases saying that yes it's a good thing and that no it's a terrible thing it it seems to be team to team but there sends, tends to be like a strong correlation that being reservist at one team is fantastic at other teams is terrible like force india paul deresta and nico hulkenberg were both reserve drivers before they got signed on the next year yeah same for philippe nazar was a reserve driver at williams got a race seat at sabre the next year but 
And yeah, Williams also had Botas as a reserve driver the year before they signed him. But there are plenty of cases to say that being a reserve driver is terrible. <laughs> Sam Bird has been a reserve driver at Mercedes for he was a reserve driver at Mercedes for three seasons, never went anywhere. Brendan Hartley was a reserve driver at not only Mercedes, but also Red Bull went nowhere. Danny Ungadea replaced Valtteri Bottas as a reserve driver at Williams went nowhere and oh the list goes on and on of people Susie Wolf who, basically admitted that's why she retired from F1 she could see she was basically not going to get not going to get anywhere where she was in that reserve driver yeah. role at Williams and I guess she felt like it was almost time too much time had passed for her to go to another series um it'd be funny if she'd gone to IndyCar uh the, <laughs> the reactions would have been all over the shop but you know uh it it does seem difficult Seems to be a good place if you want to get a Formula E ride, but not so much <laughs> F1. It's, it's pretty tricky. I, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I can't help but think if you, you, you're, keeping them, you're keeping yourself more in a shop window if you're out there racing every weekend, keeping yourself fresh, honing your racecraft, getting better as a driver. That's why I think Stoffel van Dorn's move to Japan is, it makes absolute sense um, because Super Formula is highly competitive. It also, it already has quite a lot of world-class drivers down there, including former F1 drivers like Kazuki Nakajima, uh, WEC star Andre Lotterer. You know, it's a it's a pack grid down there. Um, I'm just curious to see the Japanese press. I'm going to have to use my Japanese GCSE to good effect. I'm going to go see if there's any articles down there just saying he's disrespecting Super Formula. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. Yeah, the Japanese I, are normally more chilled than that, so. Yeah, but I mean, it, it seems to be that, like, F1 has a big problem. That there's there's no there's no place to fall back to. Yeah. That you're basically tossed out into the wild if you lose your well, seat. Because GP2 is a place for only like 19 year olds yeah once you've been in gp2 once you don't go back down to it. it's not like the nascar xfinity series where you can go back down to that series if you lose your cup ride um it it, it reminds me of a conversation i had with a a, a young lad i interviewed him at a motorsport event last year um and he said he was deliberately switching to more of an american route through motorsport because the american route was so much more clearly defined you know if you if you want to go into american open wheel racing it's you know, Road to Indy, the Pro Mazda, USF 2000s, um, Indy Lights, obviously, NASCAR. There's huge kind of very clear through lines. Whereas in the European open wheel scene, mm-hmm. good luck. Good yeah. sodding luck. <laughs> Even though it seems like in Europe it's it's heading towards a straight ladder because what? Uh, 3.5 V8 is basically clinging to relevance. Uh, GP2 is set to become Formula 2 next year, but it seems to be the problem is that you can't go back down. Yeah, that that's the big issue. Mm. There's no rebound. There's no safety net for these guys if they do lose their right. As I say, that's why in, um, in NASCAR, you've got the Xfinity Series and the Truck Series where you see cup guys go all the time. For a little while, the Truck Series was basically known as the retirement home for former cup drivers. When they lost their cup ride and they were in their late 30s, early 40s, they'd go and make a second career in the Truck Series. Look at guys like Johnny Benson, Bobby Hamilton, Mike Skinner. That's what they did. So if it's... And I, I get... Dre, you might be able to help me out yeah, more on this. Sure. I get the feeling it's a similar situation over in MotoGP where they have age restrictions on the lower... not Well, not lower categories. That's the strange thing. No, Moto2 um, and Moto3 are... Go on. 
kind of. Moto 3 has an age limit of 28. So if you're... It's a lot more forgiving, I guess. Yeah, like if you're 29 or older, you can't be in Moto 3. See Efren Vasquez, who had to basically force his way into Moto 2 because he hit the Moto 3 age limit last season. Alexis Mazzi was going to have that same problem this season. Moto 2, the age limit is 50. And we actually had a (laughs) a good discussion about this on Bike Live under the Downforce Radio umbrella last year, talking about should there be changes to the Moto 2 system. But... I think the Moto2 system works quite well. I mean, the, the, the problem is, the thing of Moto2 is, if you're an alien-level talent like an Alex Rins or, for example, a Maverick Vinales, like that kind of talent, then you'll get into the top class eventually, no problem. Most likely, straight through. There's also the guys that are going to spend four, five, six years in that class because they're not quite there because the Moto2 field is so stacked that a bad weekend will put you out of the points. Like a, you know, Simone Corsi, a Dominique Agata. Um, you know, a Lorenzo Baldassari, those kind of dudes where they'll, for instance, just spend five, six years in the medium classes or or, or, or even in the case of guys like Tony Elias, who had decent top clear, top tier runs, they'll move back down again. Because the, the first ever Moto2 champion in 2010 was Tony Elias. And, he, and this was after he had a solid five, six year career in the top class. So he moved down and won the championship and was kind of in an awkward position afterwards. He, he, he couldn't really go back up again. Um, in MotoGP, you really don't get a second chance, yeah. unlike in Formula well, 1. That's, that's the surreal thing about MotoGP racing as it's structured currently. The fact it's now Moto2 and 3, for the longest time, all three of those categories were legit world championships in their own right. It wasn't like Moto3 and 2 were feeders to the top class like quite a few riders back in the day would make very successful careers as 125 or 250 cc grand prix world champions and maybe they wouldn't go as well in the 500 cc category which was moto what would become moto gp so it's kind of interesting how it's evolved in the last few years to have more of a structured feeder series up between them and yet there were some people confused last year when we um, when Danny Kent was christened as the first grand prix world champion since Barry Sheen and everyone was going hang on a minute but he was in one of the feeder classes. What is this? So yeah, it's exactly. it's kind of interesting how they're sort of in the middle ground right now. Yeah, Kent went back. Kent went into Moto Two in twenty in twenty thirteen with the Tech Three team, but Tech Three is arguably the worst chassis provider in Moto Two. So he went back down again in twenty fourteen to join the Husqvarna team. He was a decent um, upper midfield runner in in Moto Three in twenty fifteen. 2014, so before, obviously before G joining Leopard last season and winning the championship, just. But uh, yeah, that, that it, it's it's not quite straightforward. You know what? The, the path of getting in and around is never going to be straightforward. But no, you know this, and that's probably the reason why we should respect it a little bit more than anything else. Even mm. if someone takes a different approach, like Alexander Rossi has done. Right, yeah. moving on. Uh, Channel 4, everybody. And Channel 4, in the last time since we had an episode, they have actually revealed their full lineup of presenters. And, oh, my God. It's It's basically everyone, isn't it? It's it's everyone that's held an F1 microphone in the last 10 years. Hang on. I've just got to answer my phone. Someone's ringing me back. I had to tell them earlier I'm not actually on the team. Damn. I think Channel 4 announced we were on it, guys. But I don't know about you. Did you ever get a call from Channel 4? I I haven't. No. No. Uh, Okay, I'm going to have to sort this out, guys. Hang on a minute. No, no, no American branch, King? No? No, no, I haven't been on an American sitcom, so I don't think they're considering me. Shit. Uh, um, Have may, you done may... donuts around the Senate off? Uh, that... <laughs> Trust me, like, I, I know the feeling. I, I, I work in a bedding shop now, and like the only channel that works on my on my counter is E4, so it's basically all just American sitcoms all day. You're so going to become I, an I expert know... in the Big Bang Theory. 
Yeah, oh, fuck off. Uh, no, <laughs> I hate that shit. Any, anyway, <laughs> turns out they've re revealed almost every name under the sun to be on their team for, for their, their coverage this season. So, let me take a deep breath. You just might turn into one of those like comedic scrolls you get on a cartoon that just rolls down to the floor. But uh, here we go. Steve Jones is their lead anchor. The only other two full-timers that are going to be Ed uh, Ben Edwards and David Coulthard who are going to be commentators, more than likely. Then they have the big pool of part-time rolling pundits of Eddie Jordan, Mark Webber, Susie Wolfe, Adam Prost, Murray Walker, Lee McKenzie, Karun Chanhock. I'm hearing it's going to be the pit lane reporter more than anything else. Bruno Senna. Jumping over from Sky as well. It's king. It's an enormous team, which is amazing when you consider yeah. they've, only, they've only got 10 live races next year out of 21. Like, only 10 live races, and you're going to basically, let's see, Pit Lane Reporter, they're rotating between Karun Chandok and Lee McKenzie, which seems, like, ridiculous on paper. Which seems weird, because Lee McKenzie's the actual qualified pit reporter. That, that is so redundant. Lee McKenzie's the best pit lane reporter in, in motorsport, man. Like, why, why are we doing this? It'll be like Radio Le Mans shuttling between Shay Adam and Will Stevens. Uh, <laughs> why? Why? But, and, in their press release, they said they're trying to take uh, a celebrity and lifestyle approach to F1, so don't expect, you know, technical analysis. Well, yeah. Like, I'm not sure the approach they're going to go with us yet. I mean, we'll have to wait and see it in person to see how it goes. And um, I'm glad that Channel 4 are thinking about a different approach. That's one of my mission aims, I, I said. Up. Yeah, when I, when I first heard about the news. Um, Do you know what was, was hilarious, though? I just want to get this in. There were genuinely people on Twitter who saw Murray Walker was part of the team and thought he might be on lead commentary. <laughs> the man is 92. His voice beat cancer. That's enough. <laughs> I know. Exactly. His voice. And look at that. I've beaten cancer. That, he's, he's earned the right to sit at home with a cup of tea and a nice pair of slippers and no. for Channel 4 to pop over every so often and do a nice pre-recorded segment with him. He's I, not I, I going to be flying I, out to Bahrain with Ben Edwards. I wouldn't want Murray Walker back even if he wanted to. Like, seriously, dude, sit down. You, you, you've done your job, man. The most I'd want Murray Walker back is if F1 ever planned to do like they did in the Southern 500 last year when they had Ken Squire and Ned Jarrett call the, the first 100 laps or so of the race. If they're going to do that at one of the Grand Prix, I'm down for that. Otherwise, let Murray Walker enjoy his retirement. He's earned it. Yeah, exactly. And... We mentioned it before, it just seems a little bit redundant to have that many names on there, um, especially even if they've only got 10 live races out of a 21-race calendar. Well, the funny thing is, there's even more. When they made this announcement, they said, oh, yeah, we've hired Alex Zanardi too. He wasn't in the picture, but he's on the team. And Zanardi then took to his Twitter and went, actually, no, sorry, <laughs> but no one from Channel 4 has been in touch with me. I don't know what they've... I don't know why they're saying that. That's ridiculous. Who fucked that up that bad? Like... <laughs> Like, Man, Alex Zanardi's too busy being a legend and winning Paris, Paralympic cycling titles. Uh, he has not got time for Channel 4. <laughs> exactly. Just, oh, jeez. Like, like, so, some intern just got fired. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, they've already made a big deal about this in the UK. I've seen the commercials start to do the rounds on Channel 4's programming. They were like um, Steve Jones and David Coulthard was on Chatty Man with Alan Carr last week. Um, I've already seen that. We've seen a couple of video clips from their own uh, account do the rounds already. They're getting very excited. And... and I can't lie, King. Seen from the clips they've put on Twitter, it seems like more blokey banter. 
And yeah. I, I normally like I normally hate to agree with Lester Forbes from Downforce Debrief. We mentioned just a lot that he said as well. It seems like it's still gonna be a lot like blokey banter, and I, I hate agreeing with him sometimes because but at the same time yeah, but, he's got a point. Yeah, he's got, I got fear. a point. And I mean, it seems like the other outlets have taken notice. Like I know obviously to re- replace Ben Edwards, uh at Live Five, you know, BBC Radio, they you know, oh god, I forget his name. Jack, Jack Nichols. Formula e yeah, they got Jack Nicholson to replace him at, at BBC Who's Radio. Younger than us. Scott- we talk about young talent not often getting <laughs> yes. there in broadcasting. He's younger than me, I think. Um, he's really? he's. Yeah. I think he's around the same age as us. Uh, okay. Twenty four, twenty five. Yeah. He he's very young. He only started out in sim racing not long ago, so mm. he's really come on strong. I remember a couple of years ago he was doing Blanc Pan GT alongside John Watson. So he's yeah, yeah. come on leaps and bounds. Well done to him. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, and then Sky F1 also took from Formula E's coverage. They took the former McLaren mechanic Mark Priestley from from their coverage on for the Sky F1 team this season. Oh yeah, I did see that. I actually liked Mark a lot when he was on Formula E's coverage. So yeah, that's, that's actually a pretty good high for the Sky team. What I will say about this, and um, we're talking about this um, a casual, what do you say, lifestyle approach to Formula One that Channel Four are trying to yeah. do. Yeah. Um, I. See, I don't know about this. I have a feeling, anyone listening to the show, you, you may know already, I have a real bugbear with the term casual fan. I really think a lot is put into it. And to be honest with you, if you're putting that much into a casual fan who's going to be bored after 15 minutes, they're not fans anyway. Why are you catering to them? And the, because, why, they all, because, because they all count under the TV rating. Josh. I guess so. I guess so. But anyway, <laughs> my, my point is... Um, on Sky Sports, uh, we talk about you know them being a bunch of old dudes in cardigans or sweaters, um, being blokey and being old school and praising Lewis Hamilton even when he doesn't do anything. But one feature that a lot of people do like on Sky's coverage is Ted's notebook, the uh, Ted Kravitz section, where he talks yeah. very technical. He talks strategy. He talks developments in the cars. And for me... I feel like a lot of the Formula One audience is a little bit like the conversations they have in the wrestling world now. They're like, oh, you know, it's just a little bit of the audience. They're like the smart fans. They're the smart fans. And it's like, well, no, actually, as it stands, that's quite a lot of the fan base. And I feel like Formula One is very similar. Uh, more than you think of the fan base are the hardcores, Ooh. the ones who are really into the the tech side of things and really want to get under the skin of what's going on in F1. So I... I do wonder if Channel 4 trying to... I'm not saying they're dumbing it down. I hope that's not where they're going with it. But if... I don't know. If they if they think that going the more casual route with this might be a way to go... I mean, we'll see. It might pay absolute gangbusters for them, in which case I will sit here at the end of the season and eat all the humble pie. <laughs> mm-hmm. But for now, yeah, like, we'll see. Like, on the other side of the fence, when you, when you, you kind of have to appeal to casual fans in some sort of way because ah, any su- any sport can survive in a niche. Like, people are surprised that Supercross is a thing because it doesn't have that large of a diehard fan base, yet they're still able to sell out, like, 80,000-seat stadiums here in the, in the States. And it's down to this thing where it's like... It's weird that Supercross is the sec- second most popular motorsport in America, only behind NASCAR. That's like a weird stat really? here anytime. Wow. Wow. Yes. I never knew that. 
So yeah, that's that's, that's because that's just right. the ca- because the casual viewership is like that on board that yeah they'll watch on a Saturday or a Sunday night, but they don't care about on weekdays. But but I would argue that even those casuals are fans of the series. They're still race fans. I think yeah. too much is invested in trying to distinguish between the two and the assumption that casual fans just. I, I think I think to be honest with you. My problem comes from the fact that when you talk about casual fans, it's normally an excuse to say we should dumb it down, which is not true. I think that the worst thing you can do to appeal to new fans is to talk down to them. Mm-hmm. I, th- I like. I think the term "casual fan" just gets mystified. Like, if I had to rename it, I'd, I'd call it fans who haven't been educated about the sport yet. Perfect. There you go. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, there it is. That's better. That's better. But yeah. It'll be interesting to see Channel Four's approach. Their first live weekend is Bahrain in three weeks' time. Um, and who actually turns up for the broadcast? Oh God! Like I'm <laughs> annoyed. That they, I'm, I'm annoyed enough they didn't get Australia. Like I think if you if you've got the live rights for half the races, how could you not pick the season opener? Like I, I think maybe they didn't have a choice. Who knows? Maybe, maybe, again, maybe there's a there's a reason, there's, there's a justifiable good reason for it. But I just see that like a, as a chronic oversight. Like people are most excited for the first round of the season. You've got to get the opening round at all costs. Because basically, like, the opening round of a Formula One season is where all the hype goes in, and then it gets destroyed for the rest of the season. Pretty much, Hamilton <laughs> wins, lol. So we'll see how that goes. But and uh, that's a nice segue into what's coming up later. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, yeah, the. F1 and driver discussions and whatnot, because King, we talked about the Halo the last couple of episodes, and it's clear that the GPDA, while claiming they're all on side for cockpit protection and improvement, it's become clear that there's there's been branching paths since the Halo's made its appearance. We've talked about that last episodes already, and a lot of people like Mark Webber were making great big appeals to on their Twitter accounts, basically saying that oh, the drivers should maybe have more of a say in how Formula One is. Uh, we had people like Hamilton saying F1 is broken, <laughs> which is just amazing coming from a guy that's so naive. <laughs> Literally, uh, so far, the the man seen as the most powerful man in the sport and the reigning champion have both taken a massive dump on Formula One before the start of the season. Yeah. Great promo, guys. Yeah, Fernando yeah. Alonso. Fernando Alonso called the new qualifying format over um, uh, confusingly, which is F1 was more simple. Sebastian Vettel came out and said that you know it's missing the DNA of the series, whatever the fuck that means. Uh, <laughs> Do you know what's what's fascinating about all this? Uh, and I, I say this having seen the reaction initially. When Gene Haas had one of his first press conferences joining F1, he came up with a quote that went all around the world, all across the motorsport media. And he, it was when he called, he said, NASCAR is like a dictatorship. And everyone jumped on him and went, oh, you know, he's criticizing the way NASCAR's run because it's a dictatorship. It's, you know, what they say goes and all that. What he actually was kind of saying is that that's better than how F1 does things. He actually, in the same interview, said F1 was a bit of a... Uh, I think he called it a circus. He did. Um, because he said that because the teams all have, you know, votes on what these issues are, um, nothing ever gets done because decisions get vetoed all the time. And, and yeah. I think, I have to say, I think NASCAR overall, um, you know, they formed a, a team, a race team alliance last year. There's now a driver's union of sorts over there. They were very vocal in what they thought would improve the racing over in NASCAR. And NASCAR have listened but have also maintained... They've kind of said, you know what? We have 
you know, NASCAR, the authorities, have all the power to change the rules as we see fit. But we are going to listen to your suggestions to make it better because, hey, you're the drivers. You're the ones going out there every week risking your lives for the fans' entertainment. Formula One is more of a democracy, but at the same time, the drivers are getting frustrated because it feels like they have less influence mm-hmm. because just no decisions ever get made. Indeed. So it's, it's a weird, weird juxtaposition. Yeah, so King... Oh, I can't believe I'm even acknowledging this. Is Hamilton right to say F1 is broken? One word answer. Uh... Oh, one word? Damn it, Dre. <laughs> yes. Uh, Moving on. <laughs> no. Not. F1 isn't broken, but it's broken in other ways that Hamilton is not acknowledging. Yeah. So in, in your opinion... So King basically uh, said yes, but not what Hamilton was saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, who listens to fucking Hamilton anyway, for God's sake? <laughs> right. Jeez, oh, the man snap- quite a few people. The man snapchats himself through an airport, telling the driver to go fast. He's a blatant dickhead. Moving on. <laughs> Never take casino gambling tips from him either. No, clearly. Otherwise, he'll, otherwise he'll berate you for it on Twitter and then delete it afterwards. Um, delete. His, his, his account was hacked, of course. <laughs> Shots fired. Um, but anyway, as I was saying, King, uh, you you obviously are a very strong F1 fan. Obviously, you're very knowledgeable on the sport. You study political science in university as well, so you you can see, but you might see a little bit more of the bigger picture here than most people would. In your ideas, like, is there a power struggle going on? Is like where is where is the brokenness here when it comes to Formula One? If that's even a real okay. word, I, where's the heart I'd of the issues? Say, yeah, I'd probably say like in political science we have a term that. It's mainly used in Europe, but I took a lot of European classes, so I know the terminology. <laughs> the term's cleavage. It's 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 generally like the the one largest dividing issue in in real government government politics is usually people who live in the city split between people who live in the countryside. In F one, I'd probably say it's the people who buy their cars or engines and the people who actually build the cars yeah. and engines. Yeah, that, that, that's a big problem. Now we're getting to it. That's a big problem, and as we've seen in F1 history, there's only really one or two factory teams that ever really have a chance of winning a championship once it's all said and done, and that's definitely a competitive problem that needs to be addressed, I think, more than anything else. Um, that's one way of looking at it, at least, but... Should the drivers have some form of power? Because I think we talked about this, King, last year during the podcast about we saw the results of the GPDA survey. We kind of broke them down and realized it didn't really mean anything because fans just couldn't decide on what they wanted. <laughs> if like having, like Given the drivers drive the cars, obviously, and without them, obviously, we can't go racing. Should they have some form of say? Because the way I look at it, and this is just my perspective, I don't necessarily agree that the drivers know better either, <laughs> quite frankly. And, you know, I, I, I allude back to what Sergio Perez said, for instance, about how drivers can't be trusted, essentially, for all intents and purposes. Mm. Um, and that's why we've now got a virtual safety car um, for when there's incidents like that. And it's worked very well so far. But should the drivers have some kind of say, King? Uh I'd say only advisory. Like, if mm. if there had to be a group of drivers who had power, they have to be out of the sport at least five years. I don't trust anyone who has a vested interest in how the cars handle or perform because they want it to perform how they will, 
how they feel like they would mm. be better mm. than everyone else. Yeah, yeah I think, exactly. To be honest, like I said about how there were NASCAR drivers last year directly meeting with officials to say about low downforce and advocate that, but that's because pretty much 90% of the NASCAR group are unified on how NASCAR Sprint Cup cars should race. They were yeah. across the board. They said low downforce is the way to go. That's how they've been raised. Stock cars traditionally are low downforce cars. So they were um, united in that respect, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There's... One race driver is going to prefer a different handling car to another. So can you trust them? Tra- on- tra- and tra- go, on. Go, go, go on, King, go on. And the thing with NASCAR, the driver's council is advisory only. They don't exactly. have actual power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, so basically suck it, Mark Webber. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been ragging on him a lot on Twitter the last couple of weeks because he's basically so salty that F1 isn't how he wants it to be like it was in 2004. <laughs> it's almost like you want to tell him, hey, Mark, you're doing well in the WEC now. You're a Porsche factory driver. You don't have to keep throwing the shade at a dude. Let it go. Let it go. We get it. You ain't. It's It's fine. It's fine. It's a bit like, it's a bit like that dude who keeps posting really passive-aggressive statuses about their ex. Oh God! It's like, mate, let it go. Those kind of people are dicks. But yeah, yeah. dude, just let it go. You've got, you're doing well for yourself, mate. Yeah, it's one of those things. But I'm inclined to agree. Really, I think, yeah, I think they should have a, I think they should have a say. Sure, because they deserve at least that. But at the same time, giving them actual power, I think there's way too many conflicts of interest in that that could negatively affect the sport in a way if they if if they have things that suit their needs. I think King's idea was great. If they have them, sure, have them in an advisory role if they've been out of the sport for an extended period of time. Yep. Um, I think that's actually a really good idea. Uh, we should just run F1, quite frankly, at this point. Things would be yeah. so much better. I, mean, <laughs> I, should, I should note right now that the FIA as a whole does have a driver's commission. There are some things that I don't agree with it, but it right. does exist. Okay, so there is there is some form of driver influence there. It's just not that bit i think if anything it's not that the drivers should have more power it's that the teams should have less because it's normally they who veto the big decisions and then cause this stalemate where nothing actually gets done yeah very much so and you know we we need you know high majority decisions for anything to get done in formula one if not unanimous decisions to get these things done most of the time so that's why nothing ever gets done because there's always somebody that you know is not going to like a rule change and if it, if it, for example, if it's Ferrari, it's not going to happen. Simple as that, because they can mm. veto any technical decision like that, basically. So it's 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 kind of broken from a power standpoint, but not in the way Hamilton thinks it is, basically. Yeah. But then again, why the fuck? Yeah, it's like I, I kind of wish I kind of wish it was like the motor, like the World Motorsport Council, where there's so many conflicts of interest, they just decide to pass everything. <laughs> So everything gets done. It's like fuck yeah, because (laughs) because the the World Motorsport Council has existed since the FIA has existed in like 1904, Mm -hmm. and it's still national motoring bodies who have the votes in in the World Motorsport Council, with a couple of exceptions for obvious reasons, like president of the Indian Motors (laughs) Motorsport Federation is VJ Malia, which. Obviously, it's a conflict of interest, but everyone Ugh. just ignores that. President of the International Karting Federation is uh, Sheikh Abdallah uh, bin Al- bin Al Khalifa, who is the second son of the of the King of Bahrain, who owns McLaren and also runs a Grand Prix on the schedule. Bernie has his own seat because he's Bernie, basically. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I mean, I'm going to move on quickly because we're already over an hour and a quarter, but it's essentially drivers should have a say, but not too much of a say, and I don't think anybody should have too much of a say. But uh, good luck sorting that mess out. We're going to preview the 2016 season right about now, and let's cut to the chase here. Sebastian Vettel, you may be our only hope here. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> like, the way, the, way, the way it's been promoted this year, uh, it's... It's, it's, it's Nico like, Rosberg, I'm so sorry. Like I said it before on our website and on YouTube, like Nico Rosberg has been reduced to Mark Webber charity status in the sense of we will all cheer for him when he wins, but nobody expects him to actually win the big one at this point. It's almost so, like people have given up on him and they were like, come yeah. on, Nico, you are our hope. Uh, no, you can't do it in the same equipment. We're going to have to rely on someone else. Seb, you're looking pretty good again. You're up. Yeah. Exactly, because Rosberg's 0-3 against Hamilton now. I think it's fair to say if it was going to happen it would have happened by now. And it's a shame because Rosberg has run Hamilton close on many occasions, but he's just not quite got enough to upset the Apple car. And I think, as Tick Graffitt said during on a Sky's uh, round the table blokey banter discussions, plus Pinkham is there, discussion videos that went up on Sky. It's like, I think Hamilton's kind of bored of Rosberg at this point. And, you know, do you want to talk about Hamilton versus Rosberg for the fourth consecutive year? Or where's the golden carrot here? And that's, Sebastian Vettel in the Ferrari. The Ferrari seemed to be back on top, or at least certainly much improved from where they were. It's like it's the strongest pound-for-pound car they've had in maybe five years. And Vettel was superb last season, winning three races, scoring 13 podium finishes, and just generally looked like he was he was the big, he was the biggest threat that wasn't in silver. King has he actually got a shot this year? Oh, I'm. Uh, I, I don't want to say. I want to say yes. I can't get that. I want to. I want to say yes, but I have like no evidence to back that up. It would just be like a bold proclamation with no evidence. Exactly. It's like it's a gut feeling here because nobody knows how close that Ferrari really is to Mercedes. I mean, everybody like like Rosberg went out after the testing saying that Ferrari's very close. If he has data that we don't, maybe I'm missing something here. But I, I've also joked before that Nico Rosberg is like the world's most paranoid man in the sense of he's always looking over his shoulder. And he was the first guy to say, oh, game on for the championship off the Vettel one at Malaysia last year. But at the same time, like Vettel wouldn't win again for eight rounds. So it's it, it's the, the threat never really was there. Like Ferrari were, were a distant second last The problem year. is, and it was actually uh, Nick Damon on Radio Le Mans who pointed this out, um, overall, on average last year, the pace gap between Mercedes and Ferrari was almost the same as the gap between Mercedes and I think it was Red Bull. Yeah, in 2014. In 2014, it was yeah. almost the same. Which, yeah, obviously it looked a lot closer because um, generally they'd at least split the Mercs or they'd get those wins here and there. But mm, yeah, maybe it, maybe it, it papered it, over some cracks there. Yeah, it doesn't help there that basically... I think the reason for that is because people are more emotionally invested in Ferrari than they are in Red Bull. And a lot of people couldn't, a lot of people couldn't stand Red Bull when they I think were. a lot of people enjoyed seeing Red Bull fall off their perch, let's exactly. be honest. Exactly. Yeah, because you know, they were the best team in Formula 1 for four consecutive years, yeah. and arguably four and a half, given that they, they were the strongest team in the second half of 2009 when Braun GP fell off the wagon. So it's like they, they were the dudes for four and a half years. And 
obviously Mercs have come along and have been the dudes for for two seasons now. And f- because f- I think more people care about Ferrari as a as a brand and as a team than they do about Red Bull, of course people are going to beg and cape for, for Ferrari to be that close. But I'm with King. I can't see it. I can't get there with Vettel. I just can't. Like I looked at the bookmakers today, man, and like Vettel is five to one to win it, to win in Australia. That that's that's far too high on odds for me to, to suddenly get behind that. But at the same time, it's it's like like I want him to be there because of course I think I think every casual fan wants him to be there because you know seeing more than one different kind kind of car fighting out is we just always want nicer. Competition again. Yeah, like they want competition, and we and we're bored with Rosberg, and because was Rosberg is is just not there. He's not good enough to constantly threaten Hamilton. Mm. So that's I think the biggest story going into this season is can Sebastian Vettel bridge that gap? And I just can't get there. Like, like again, maybe we'll be we'll be shocked in Australia. We'll have a, we'll have a, we'll have Vettel all over Rosberg's turn and be like, oh, maybe he does have a shot. Who knows? <laughs> and you know, again, who knows at that point? But in the meantime, uh, shall we? I propose uh, in the style of your now famous Dre TV season two season finale mm. when you previewed the 2015 season yes. should we go team by team yes yes let's do that should we start let's, at the back let's start at the back and work our way forward so let's go with the new boys first Haas uh, I was going to say is it Haas or Manor because Haas weren't even there last year so I guess we'll go with Haas first yeah Haas first Romain Grosjean Esteban Gutierrez strong team star driver in Romain Grosjean you know, he's a brilliant driver I mean I worry about Grosjean because I think his prime years have been wasted away with shitty machinery. I really do because Grosjean, the last time he was in a really good car was the second half of 2013 and he was devastating mm. in that Lotus towards the end of that 2013 V8 era run. He's not really been the same dude since, mostly because of the cars he's been in. A lot of this comes down, I think, to Hass's initial package, eh, King? Yeah, I mean, Haas... Throughout testing, they seem to be, you know, on, you know, points pace, but they've had some reliability issues, yeah, which is time. obvious with any new team. Yeah. Is that not something I did read, though, that that was something across most of the Ferrari powered teams? Uh, maybe it's something to do with dealing with the new um, engine know. package, potentially? Something like that. I did see they had their problems with that. I know Ferrari had a couple of breakdowns. I know Toro Rosso had a couple of breakdowns because it's Toro Rosso at the end of the day. But even so, yeah, they had some reliability problems. The package does look decent. I can't lie. It's like Mm. they've got some speed there. And Grosjean is a great driver. So I think once he gets it together... I think he'll be a good team leader. Yeah, I think he's. I think he'll be an excellent team leader. He's thirty years old. He's got the experience. He's, yep. he's 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 had a good range of cars to play with now, and is, he's now one of the more experienced drivers in the field, given his time in F one as well. So, I think it's a great guy to lead the team forward. Esteban Gutierrez was rather unspectacular in his first two seasons there, but he's been given another chance. And if it's anything like his Sauber package, I think he sh- I think he'll do okay. I mean. I'm not Will Buxton. I'm not going to cape for him like he does, but maybe, maybe he'll sc- scrape some points together here and there. I think it's, I think it's a definitely a make or break kind of season for Esteban, even though he's well sponsored. I think this is a big opportunity for him to. to well, he's stop. one of those second class, a uh, second chance drivers we talked about earlier. Yeah, a, a rare thing in itself. And if it, if there's anything he can do to change the perception of what he's doing, I think now would be a very good time to do it. Um, I think there's most- two other factors playing in Haas's favour here. Uh, one of them is what you said time and time again with Haas, that he's prepared to spend big. He is prepared to really invest in this project. And also, 
Judging on his previous record, he's prepared to go the distance. He's prepared yeah. to stick around on this one because he first started his now very successful NASCAR operation in 2003. And for a long, long, for a good six years, they were a mid to back market team. They really kind of had to cut their teeth, you know, having drivers like Mike Bliss drive for them. Um, and then they formed the alliance with Tony Stewart in 2009. And it still took them another three seasons for them to get their first title with Tony Stewart in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since then, they've been on an absolute tear. So... Haas has basically done what it took six years for him to do in NASCAR, which is align with the very successful team in terms of Hendrick and Tony Stewart. He's done that straight away with Ferrari in F1. But you get the feeling that he's prepared to back his ambition with money and staying power. So I, yeah. I get the feeling they're not here for like a one and done or two Indeed. or three seasons, then they're out again. Indeed, and Haas has already promised he's willing to lose $100 million a year to make this project work, which is a crazy amount of money. So they'll develop fast all right as well, I think. If they, if they have people, the engineers that know what they're doing, I think I think they stand to do quite well, quite frankly. Mana, we've already spoken at length at Mana quite a lot, so I'll keep this one <laughs> relatively brief. This Haas is the Motorsport 101 podcast presented by Mana. Don't even get me started on that. But yeah, <laughs> the team of Pascal Verlein and, and uh, Ria Harianto. Now, there's a lot, I think, to like about this Manor team in terms of performance going forward. They've now got a top-of-the-line power unit from Mercedes. That's a big boost to their team. They keep nabbing dudes from other teams' technical departments. It's like they're stitching together a good team from guys who have been fired from other teams. Exactly. They've got a very experienced... For a guy who's 21, he's got plenty of F1 experience in in, in Verline already from, from a testing standpoint. His actual race craft in F1 remains to be seen. But he's a champion in DTM as well, so he's got that winning mentality. Yeah, yeah, whatever the hell that actually is. (laughs) (laughs) Some stepping stone to F1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, Verline is is, is very good. I think Harry Anto is better than I think the many people are giving him credit for, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot to like about this team going forward. They've got a good young team there. They have a a, a much improved power unit. Um, The big question here is going to be the chassis, isn't it, King? Yeah, it's going to be the chassis. Oh, God. Uh, Mike, go on. If it's... It needs to be quick. It it just needs to be quick. It really does. The engine just needs to be reliable. If the chassis is quick, that's literally all it needs to do. That's literally all it needs to do. Well, my, my, my big question to you guys is this. Uh, Mana have made steps forwards, but have they made enough steps forward to not be last in the constructors this year? And basically, the two teams I think they have potential to beat, Haas, maybe, although Haas look very good. The only team I could the only other team I could potentially see them beating is Sauber. I don't know about you guys, but it's going to be very difficult because as much as Manor have made big steps forward, I think everyone else except for Sauber have made bigger steps forward, if that makes sense. Yes, I think, that, I think that's fair to say. And Sauber, I, oof, like... There's like it's like the opposite in that Sauber camp because it's like what do you get behind in that Sauber camp? I mean, there was already talk last month that they they were late in paying their staff for February as it is, and like they have two okay drivers in Felipe Nasa. Like, Nasa showed flashes of promise. Well, at least this year they've only got two drivers. Let's be honest, they started last year with four. Oh god, don't even go there. <laughs> and Mark, I'm not convinced on Marcus Ericsson either, but geez, like. Is there anything positive to take out of that Sauber camp at the moment? It feels very flat. 
doesn't it? Like they were late debut in the 2016 car. They they retained a a decent but uninspiring driver lineup. It feels like they're treading water. It does, and you know they, they were late paying their stuff, so they've clearly got cash flow problems of some kind in there, which doesn't help the situation either. Um, King, any positives you can draw from this? They don't have four drivers. Is that a plus? <laughs> uh, it seems like they're waiting for something, whether it be yeah. a new investor or a new sponsor, just anything. It seems like they're waiting. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm not saying it's the beginning of the end kind of thing, but I think Johnson said it best when he's talking about treading water. I think that's the, like spinning their wheels is, would be another way of saying yeah. it. I think that's how it comes across they, right now. They kind of come off like Williams in the late 2000s, early 2010s, before they had that resurgence in, you know, 2013, 2014, when they were really really in the doldrums compared to where they were it feels like at the moment Sauber are just fighting to survive as I say treading water hoping that the fresh impetus comes in to turn things around maybe morale's negative around the camp after the debacle of the start of last year who knows I just as I say I think um I think Haas will start strong and they'll hit the ground running so I don't see Manor beating them I have a real feeling that Sauber could be mugged off by Manor this year I think they're sleepwalking into disaster you really believe in Manor that strong it's a combination of believing in Manor have have turned a corner and done a lot of good things and Sauber haven't done enough. I just feel like with everyone moving forward so much, Sauber kind of haven't. So I feel like they're going to have to be careful. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a, that's a fair... King, do you, do, you, do you share the same view? Are you that strong in belief that Manor can bridge that maybe two or three seconds they need to start maybe thinking about points? Yeah, I, I have a feeling that... I wouldn't say points is in their reach but the mercedes power unit definitely gives them the opportunity like again i would mm-hmm. say it's down to the chassis whether it, you know puts them over the top on whether they could score points or not yeah that's very true that's very true moving up to lotus next or so this case now the newly repackaged renault team making their return with jody and palmer and kevin magnuson among their team now Again, we talked about him a little bit as well in previous episodes, but it's an exciting driver lineup. I mean, Magnussen is a fan favorite. He very inexperienced, but in, with a lot of potential. But potential is there. Very fast in qualifying. He did outqualify JB over a season. That's something to bear in mind. He he did have excellent one lap speed last year. Also, oh, two years ago, I should say. Now, God, it's gone so fast. <laughs> um, twenty fourteen, he showed good qualifying speed. Racecraft was sketchy at times, though. Um, and he's got Julian Palmer next to him. He's a little bit older, a little bit more experienced in the junior categories. Um, one of the best. If there was a GP two Hall of Fame, Julian Palmer would definitely be in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so to speak, he dominated in twenty fourteen. Had to sit on the sidelines in twenty fifteen as Renault's third driver. But he's been given the chance, um, a, a chance that, you know, you don't normally see people actually promoting with him within their own for once, which is, I guess, kind of nice to see. Um, King, any thoughts on the driver battle going forward? Oh, driver battle. It, to me, it seems uh, I, I don't expect any of them, like either Palmer or Magnuson, to be incredible out there. Uh, but... <sighs> The fact that both of them spent a year off from racing, they they really first need to prove that they're capable of being competitive, and then we work from there. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I think what's, what's interesting about Renault is that, in a way, they've kind of gone about it in a very different way to Haas. Haas went in there with an experienced driver lineup, 
um, in uh, Grosjean and Gutierrez. Uh, they went in there with, you know, immediately establishing to give themselves the best chance. Uh, it feels to me like Renault are almost the polar opposite. They've gone in there with a very much more raw driver lineup. And, you know, as we talked about Haas's commitment to the series earlier, I have concerns over Renault's commitment because, and my basis for this is simply because, uh, look at, I mean, they are under the same banner as Nissan, and Nissan made a huge, huge storm when they went into the World Endurance Championship with their car. They took out a commercial at halftime in, in the Super Bowl, for goodness sake. They yes. went all in. That program was dead within a year. Granted, Renault's Formula One car is not a front-engine hybrid mad machine like you'd see in wacky races, but my point remains, Carlos Gossin, uh, the, the chairman of the Renault-Nissan group, um, I, I do wonder. I, I think he's the sort of guy who will want to see immediate returns. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he's going to start getting concerned about his investment. That's definitely what led to him pulling the plug on the Nissan program mm-hmm. less true. than a year into a three-year deal. So yeah, I think Renault are going to have to produce results quickly and putting that amount of pressure on a driver lineup with one full season in F1 between them. Yeah, uh, to me, I'd have, I, I wonder if they tried very hard to retain Grosjean because... You know, I think Grosjean's going to do well for Haas this year and having that experience on board to transition over. I mean, we know why Maldonado wasn't retained, but I feel like they're starting complete blank slate and it's going to be difficult. It's going to be pretty tricky. But uh, like, I, I don't know about Gozen being so quick to pull the plug because first, uh, Frederick Rousseau, the team principals, has openly stated it's going to be at least three years before is, they see any. That, I was about to say. Hmm. Any I, results. I, I hope that's him kind of calming any. I think that's him. I, I hope that's him kind of giving a reality check, as if to say, you know, let's be patient here. Let's not sit down after a year and go, oh, we haven't won a race. We're pulling the plug. So I hope that's him being realistic about it, and he's got exactly the right approach. And Renault have a long history in Formula One. Like when they've returned to Grand Prix racing in the 70s, they've won a constructors championship as a factory team or an engine supplier every decade since. Mm -hmm. That's very impressive. That is indeed. Um, I, would, I don't think Renault's going to risk pulling out anything like that. I mean, they wouldn't have come back in the first place if that's the way they felt. And the question is, is can they get their power unit up to snuff? And you know yeah, what? That's the big thing. How bad is it going to look if Red Bull smash into pieces this year, which could very well happen, yeah. given they're on, given that Red Bull are now developing a what is essentially a Renault power unit with a brand behind it, and we'll get to them later. But at the same time, they've they've got a statement to prove now that they were on the right side of this messy breakup. Like yeah. any yeah, yeah. broke like any broken up ex boyfriend, they want to make it look like they're still the better one, and that she and that she was the crazy <laughs> one. So. That's where Renault's going to stand going forward in this one. And I'm, I'm curious to see how they end up because it, there's a lot to get excited about. And, and they are a factory team, but they are one of the weakest factory teams out there. Speaking of which, McLaren. Hey. Uh, <laughs> McLaren Honda. And the they keep obviously they keep their driver lineup of Alonso and Button. It's a very strong team on paper in terms of from a driver standpoint, of course. But as we all know, that's not the problem with McLaren Honda at yeah. all. It, it's that Honda power unit. And... Honda have already made big claims that they're they're a lot better than what they were last year. But I saw a comment on Twitter about two hours ago saying that Eric Boulier says he's entering... He's entering Australia, and I quote, with a lot of unknowns. That's not a good sign, but... They've got to be better than last year, right, King? 
they have to be better than last year. There's no excuses here. Yeah, with uh, with Arai leaving as engine chief on Honda's end in what I think at the end of this month, the board are not impressed at the progress that's been made so far. And they want to see results. They want to see the results that they were promised. They were promised that Button Alonzo would be this generation's pro-senna. <laughs> Oof. Man, imagine that. <laughs> That's totally not a bold claim. And can I just ask, King, who... Uh, which Is that McLaren saying they're unhappy with Honda's performance so far, or vice versa? No, that's 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 Honda saying they're unhappy with their own performance with their oh, power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, th- th- that is where the fault lies. It seems... I don't know. I, to be honest with you, I, I do wonder if Honda stumbling so badly and Renault struggling, maybe that's putting off other manufacturers coming into F1 because this new hybrid power unit era, they're great engines if you can get them right, but it's very difficult not to, and it's very, very expensive even if you do. So I wonder if the Honda story will be a cautionary tale. I mean, if they turn it around this year, fantastic, but it's it's going to be a tricky one going forward. Yeah, um, not much to really talk about from McLaren Honda besides that, really, because we all know that's the one big issue here because again it's mclaren like if they have a decent car they will do well that's what mclaren has always tended to be but they're still making up for 2012 or all these years later and uh yeah i mean people are going to start asking a lot more serious questions if they if this is going to be a second straight year with the hybrids where they're struggling and again the to the green like i said before i always totally get why they left mercedes as an engine supplier they were never going to win that way and yeah. mclaren is a team that likes to win but this was the alternative. Oh boy, um, I can't. It's, it's looking like a bad investment more and more by the, by the race. But, I just don't uh, think anyone foresaw just how badly Honda would get this current rules package wrong. Or just, or just how or just how late they were to the party in general. Yeah, it's very difficult. Which is strange considering that mm-hmm. generally Honda's racing program across the board is consistently very strong. They're the current British Touring Car champions over there. Mm-hmm. Super GT over in Japan, they run very compact turbocharged engines I, I think they might be hybrid as well so it's not like they're strangers to the technology and of course their IndyCar program has generally been pretty solid so it's a difficult one and I, so far I mean we Twitter got very excited not long ago mm-hmm. when there were claims coming out that they'd made up 150 horsepower on the power unit Number one, it was, it was, it was 225 225 mate. yes uh, sorry 225 yeah. number one is that even true? I mean, this is no. McLaren Honda we're talking about, who are kings of the of the hot air and the hype. Mm-hmm. Number two, even if that is true, the only way that would be effective is if we kind of know roughly how much the other manufacturers have made gains on their engines. Because if Mercedes have gained another 150, <laughs> McLaren may as well not bother. They're back at square one. Exactly. So there's a lot. There's a lot of hype and talk. Because obviously McLaren have got such a devout, a, a devout following. They've got a very strong f- fan base. Obviously, people want to see McLaren do well as a British brand, but. Boy, or Arav. There's, or Arav. But yeah, there's, 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 a lot, there's a lot of question marks going forward where that's concerned. Toro Rosso. Now, they've got, again, a very exciting lineup there with Carlos Sainz Jr. and Max Verstappen in year, year two of the, of the Max Verstappen uh, following and the Max Verstappen project. And, you the know, cult of Verstappen. The cult of Verstappen grows larger by the day. <laughs> but um, year two is going to be interesting and they've got Ferrari power units going forward. And... 
I I I wonder how is is that is that gonna finally give them that top five push they've been wanting for the last three or four years now because. Toro Rosso and Franz Tost has always made the claim, we've got a top five car, we've got a top five car. It's the third straight year he's made that claim, King. Is this going to be the year? Oh, if, if there was a year, it would be this year, because I'm pretty sure they would be competitive with the Red Bulls, maybe. <laughs> yeah, because I think that's... I think deep down, he'd never admit it in public for obvious reasons, but I think Franz has to be thinking deep down. Hmm. We can take him here, I think. <laughs> you've got like, to be fancying it. Seriously, you've got to be fancying it. Because you, you've seen your sister team and the struggles they've gone through. They dropped from second to fourth in the constructors last year. They really struggled on the power circuits. Um, they've, they've now, they're now developing the engine themselves as opposed to having Renault do it for them because they think they know better and they're going to drop a bucket load of money to try and make this happen. And there's no Adrian Newey anymore. There's no like Newey's still there as an advisor, but he's not he's not directly influencing the team from the sidelines anymore. But if you're Toro Rosso with those drivers and a car that did do pretty solid last year, given the circumstances, and, and despite the massive amounts of reliability issues they had last year with the Renault power unit, Ferrari, we know that they've improved massively in 2015. It's a good unit to be with. Maybe they can get over the hill on that one. I'm very curious to see that one. I'm very curious to see how quick it takes before we pencil Max Verstappen as a future world champion again. Uh, <laughs> so that'll be fun to keep an eye on. Force India. Hmm. I haven't really got much to talk about with Force India because they just seem to be just kind of like like the the median team. Like they are the definition of the midfielder. Um, I feel like, to be honest with you, they made their big gain midway through last year. So I don't expect massive gains from them this time around, but they really took a step forward midway through last year when they introduced their B-Spec car. Uh, I expect that kind of growth to continue gradually. I, I think they'll probably be around where they are, kind of top of the midfield. Um, we know their driver lineup's very solid, but... I mean, you've spoken briefly about this elsewhere, Dre, about the silly season. Does, mm. if one domino falls, if that, you know, if Kimi Raikkonen does decide he's retiring or whatever, yeah. does that then affect Force India? Because it feels to me like both their drivers would be potential targets for top teams. Agreed. So it's very interesting if, it, it, you know, if Kimi Raikkonen announces he's quitting two months into the season, does that mean Ferrari will make an offer to Hulkenberg? Will his head be turned? Who knows? So that could be a big disrupting factor. Yeah, I still think that the bot has to be the number one target if that was to happen. But even so, True. I think I think Force India would definitely play a massive hand in how City season would play out because they've had they've been linked or have driven for top teams themselves in the past, especially in the case of Sergio. Yeah. And, and, and he was fantastic the second half of last season. Oh, so, so, so so of course the Sergio talk has started again from where that it's like we've gone back to twenty twelve again with Sergio <laughs> Perez. But even so, him and Hulkenberg being there it's a it's a sexy team they 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 finally got into the top five last year after so many years of trying their best ever season as a team um and a real team of the year contender given where they were and their, their progress moving forward the problem is the four teams above them are all really really good teams with really big budgets been uh, you know in, in their arsenal and that's going to be the big hump to crack. like where do they go from here king and i think that's that's They've got to try and retain the, their fifth place, surely, but I don't see them getting any higher than here. It's like it's like the pro wrestling mid card that it can't break the glass ceiling. <laughs> yeah, it really seems that Force India really don't have the resources to push into the top four at all. They're the Dolph it, Ziggler of F1. Yeah, it. They need something to like change. They need to come up with like 
some breakthrough breakthrough development wise that some team just for some reason just didn't think of before to even have a chance or there'd be a lot of wet races or something of that nature <laughs> they basically need to be brawn 2.0 yeah <laughs> yeah and that's not going to happen with, the, with what they've got underneath them again they've got the controversy of vj malia um trying to run out of india right now and there's and court cases and that that's not a good sign for them either but you know there's more minor negatives than minor positives to say about the force india camp at present but they've got they've got two very good drivers a solid car a mercedes power unit they should still be in contention for the top five for sure but yeah again i think they've hit the wall here now and i think it would, it would take a big leap for them to get anywhere near that top four Speaking of which, Red Bull Racing. Now, again, we've kind of talked about them a little bit already on this episode, but it's uh, it's an interesting one. I think this is the one where I think that we could swing on a knife. This could affect the entire grid because Red Bull has got a lot of interesting things going for it right now. They spent £200 million on their car last year. It's the first time ever an F1 team has spent £200 million in development. That's a ridiculous ridiculous amount of money that's stupid money no matter which way you look at it, it's almost one manchester united transfer budget but at the same time it's it's scary and you know they've got daniel ricardo who is an excellent driver by any stretch of the imagination we all saw 2014 and what he was capable of 2015 fast but unspectacular especially given that you know daniel kavir you know ended up outscoring him last year which again not a good look if you're ricardo um i know people were often very strong to defend him saying things like reliability and qualifying and whatnot and raw speed but like ricardo's stock i think is one that's taken a bit of a knock from 2014 where he was arguably driver of the year he's often been linked with ferrari he's openly stated that you know he might have to think about his future if red bull don't improve this is a big year for red bull isn't it king yeah, big year for Red Bull. Oh, I I don't know how running their own power unit will uh, will, you know, clearly benefit them, but if somehow they can get it to work, I I don't see them challenging Ferrari, but I could definitely see them, you know, being clearly better than Williams. I can't I can't go there with with them any higher than third. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think at best they're gonna they'll they'll, they'll take Williams on. Um, it's it's hard because there's again there's so many variables and that like the question is I think the biggest issue with me is that how is Red Bull gonna develop that that power unit because do they know better than Renault when it comes to engine development? I'm gonna tentatively say no, but they have a lot of very very brilliant minds in that team i mean they, they're four-time constructors champions you don't you don't fluke your way there but at the same time boy there's a lot of risk if they get this wrong don't you think yes a whole lot of risk huge amount. because they'll end they could in they could uh theoretically hypothetically have a worse power unit than renault yeah it, it, it would not take much they are they are setting up to maybe have the biggest falling on own sword in f1 history (laughs) or one of them at least (laughs) but uh yeah i mean it's it's gonna be like red bull i think will be the biggest team to watch in all of this outside of ferrari because boy um (laughs) 
there's a lot that could go right with this. There's a lot that could very easily go wrong with this. And if, if, if Red Bull have one more bad year, I think they could lose Ricardo, and they don't want to lose a guy like him as much as, I mean, even though, hey, with Max Verstappen going how he is, maybe it's a good thing for the brand if Ricardo was to move along. Just throwing that out there. Silly um, season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> look, uh, moving on, Williams. I don't think there's an awful lot to talk about with Williams. I think it's 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 going to be hard for them to get up there because again, like last year, they just haven't got the tools to really give Ferrari and Mercs a, a good run consistently. At the moment, it feels to me like they're the big team that, given how badly they struggled not long ago, it's almost like Williams are kind of happy to be there. Yeah, I mean they're in third and they're 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 like they are back to back third place finishes and. I got a great stat from Sean Kelly about this, um, known as F1 Statman on Twitter. You may know of him. And what uh, Kelly was was basically, if Williams finish third again this season, they'll be the first team to finish third three years in a row without winning a Grand Prix, um, which is kind of a crazy stat. In That's own. consistency. Yeah, consistency. But again, I don't think anybody really wants to be the bronze medal. Um, and they've got again a, a solid lineup they have Felipe Massa who's I think been chronically under un, underspoken about given how good he's been the last couple of years and Bottas, and Bottas is a like Bottas is the kind of is the weird one because he's the guy that I feel like I don't know what his ceiling is like I expected him to be better this season, especially given 2014 he was superb he, he finished fourth overall he finished fourth overall again this year, actually, no, he was fifth. Actually, he was fifth just behind Raikkonen. Raikkonen beat him on the final race for that fourth position. But um, he's a top five level dude, Bottas for sure. But does he just have that? Like, is the star quality there, King, for him to you know, to say, "Oh, this guy could drive for a top team and you know win races regularly and whatnot"? Uh, I don't know if the quality is there. It, it it's sort of one of those things you don't know until it happens. But from what I've seen. It, I would say it could be there. It's it's highly likely it's there. Yeah. Um, See so again. It, it could be there. Maybe it's just maybe it's just the wrong team for him at present. That could easily be that. We'll have to wait and see. But yeah, like Williams, there's not an awful lot to talk about with them because I think it's just another team that's just kind of there, really. And there's there's not been an awful lot to talk about regarding them. We've already talked about Ferrari. I mean, we could talk about briefly about Kimi Räikkönen and his role in this. I think if Ferrari truly want to have a shot at the constructors, they need more from Räikkönen. They need 250 to 300 from Räikkönen to really have a chance. I just think his best days are behind him. Yeah, um, uh, I, I I just don't see like if, if Ferrari want the constructors, they need to replace Raikkonen, in my opinion. As so I think they, they need a better second, need a better second driver. You know, Vettel will get his. It's going to be a matter of can they get another dude who can who can get in there and, and you know, mix it up with Rosberg and whatnot. And Raikkonen just can't consistently do that. And I think that's going to be a big problem for Ferrari going forward if they want to topple Mercedes from a constructor standpoint. Um, and Mercedes, Hamilton versus Rosberg for everybody. Yay. Yay! No, no. Oh, <laughs> why do I even bother? I mean, I think it's fair to say. I mean, yeah, I, I saw my race world TV video and I saw that I made. I said Rosberg would win the championship this year, and then <laughs> how much did you really mean that? And how much were you being controversial? 
In the first paragraph of said video, I said, don't take me completely seriously on this. <laughs> Imagine how many people took the bait on that. It's, <laughs> I may oh, may, you love it, don't you? I may or may not have done that on purpose. <laughs> You're literally like the, a sort of ace fisherman, just like, how many trolls can I get today? Oh, there's a load of them. You guys, like, these people are just so easy. Like, if you refresh your Twitter timelines, you'll see it right now. Or like, oh, well, at the time of recording, at least, this, that um, I'm getting people that call me, oh, you're a Rosberg caper, and I'm like, <laughs> they take the base so well. Nailed. But, yeah, um, serious prediction, world championship. Are we saying Hamilton all around here? Uh, I know I am. To be honest with you, I think... Nico, the the gap between Rosberg and Hamilton is nowhere near as big as people make out. No. However, However, I feel like Rosberg's missed his two best attempts because Agreed. Hamilton, he had his best shot in 2014 when they were out in front and it was almost like Hamilton and Rosberg were looking at each other going, well, we've got no competition. I guess it's between us now. And had things gone differently in that year and Rosberg won the title instead of Hamilton, I think he would have had the confidence going into 2015. I think now it's a case of Hamilton's done it twice he is relaxed. He feels like he can do it all over again. Rosberg's the one with the big mental hurdle to over... Not to sound like the Sky Sports pundits, but he has got the big hurdle to overcome now mentally because no one in the world believes he can beat Hamilton over a season. Mm-hmm. He has to. Otherwise, who... Because if he doesn't, who will? So, I th- I, I don't know. I think the only hope... I think there's too many question marks over Sebastian Vettel for me. Yeah, I think the big thing is, uh, I think we're going to find out in Australia if Mercedes were sandbagging and if so, how much. Testing is never a very good indicator of pace overall, but it was certainly closer than last year. So you wonder if Mercedes were holding something back or maybe, you know, normally they're the sort of team that does like to lay down the superpower laps and then go, oh, it was nothing. And then the rest of the field goes, fuck, we're doomed. That didn't happen this year, but I don't know. It's very hard to tell. King, I know I know you're the Rosberg guy. Have you, have you got an, have you got enough of an argument Ros to pick Caper. Rosberg? Here? Uh, as as the internet's secret Ross caper. <laughs> <laughs> Not until this have, nope. <laughs> I have to really say that until Ferrari proves me otherwise, it's Hamilton's championship to lose with Rosberg having the best chance to stop him. So Hamilton then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> and there you have it. Australia this weekend. Hope you guys enjoy it. Probably won't. But um, in any I case... I just I just find it so brilliant that the show that is mostly Formula 1-centred, right. it gets to the F1 season preview and we go, Hamilton will probably win. Who cares? Can we talk IndyCar some more, please? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> When it comes to talking about F1, I'd rather talk about the politics. When it comes to the racing, it's like, I really don't want to talk about trying to predict it because it's just going to be sad. It's yeah, just, like, I, I might just, just like, I, I, I might just, like, ban all F1 race predictions from here from here on out going forward. It's it's like, it's, it's That's like the Lewis Hamilton is like Roman Reigns. <laughs> Everyone knows he's going to be champion for years, but that doesn't mean you have to like that fact. 
And I, just, I know, I know yeah. King kind of glossed over it, but he said, says the guy that runs a prediction league. God damn it, King. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to join that, by the way, it's on the Casual GP Predictor website. Just search for the Motorsport 101 League. I'd probably give away a T-shirt to whoever wins it, unless I win it again, in which case we'll go to second place. So I just, I've said that for the record now. So yeah, join that. I'll, I'll, I'll put a link to it in the uh, SoundCloud description. I'll tell you what you should do for bonus oh. points. Um, you should have a... P6 through P10 predictor. Because that's oh, the yeah. one that's genuinely difficult that, to predict that, in yeah, F1 these that's days. That's how it mm. works. That's mm. how it works. There yeah, you that, go. That, 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 that could help out. But uh, yeah, that'll just about wrap it up for this episode. We've got nearly two hours. My God, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, we, we, you guys have got lives. I mean, I don't want to get in the way or anything like that. Jeez. <laughs> um, but um, if you haven't already, you can follow me on Twitter at Harrison101HD. You can follow King on Twitter at Ryan Eric King. And Adam is on Twitter at AJ underscore Bombersports. This will be up on Friday, as always. Obviously, if you want to, if you want to, as well, subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. Use youtube.com forward slash Motorsport 101 for your lovely Motorsport 101 podcast in handy bite-sized chunks and the Drebrief series as well, which will be back this week as well. Sorry, we, we kind of took two weeks out on that one. We were all very busy with, you know, life and shit. Yeah, sorry about but, that. But, uh, <laughs> Johnson! Sorry. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but in the meantime, I've been Andre Harrison. He's been Ryan King. He's been Ryan... Uh, Ryan Johnson, Jesus. <laughs> Get me out of here. This is the show for the mashups. First Toto Williams and now this. (laughs) We had the worst. Goodness me. Anyway, I've been Andre Harrison. Thank you very much for listening. I'll catch you guys next time. Sayonara. Fucking Ros Capers. <laughs> <laughs>